Hello and welcome to the Andyplex. I'm your host, Andy Majorano, and this is episode 15. First Contact is about ourselves. Today we will explore the 1996 sci-fi action drama, Star Trek First Contact, now in its 25th year. So hard to believe. This is my favorite Star Trek movie and my secret favorite film ever. I know I said it was The Shining. The Shining is definitely up there. This movie's got it all. Star Trek is about the future of humanity, its potential, and what we can achieve when we all work together. It's just so nice. I want it to be real. I want it to be reality. <sighs> anyway, I wouldn't call it a religion, but it sure is a philosophy. And First Contact, or Star Trek VIII, is the second of four Next Generation films, and I believe it perfectly epitomizes Star Trek, and it's also the most fun. It's about Starfleet's history and humanity's beginning to explore the stars. First contact is when humanity meets aliens and we all come together. And thanks to our favorite Trek villain, the Borg, a race of cybernetic organisms all linked together in a hive mind, using time travel to threaten and test our very foundations. This movie was directed by Commander William Riker himself, Jonathan Frakes, and was a family affair. Because we've got returning superstars, Sir Patrick Stewart, Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, LeVar Burton, Marina Sirtis, Gates McFadden, and Michael Dorn traveling back in time to stop the Borg from stopping, that's right, First Contact. I saw this movie three times in the theater as a 12-year-old, and I wore down our VHS to a nub from watching it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Seeing my favorite small screen characters explode onto the big screen was huge. I didn't realize how spoiled we were as TNG fans, that's the next generation to the lay people, but we got to see big movies, basically episodes of our favorite show on the big screen. And my goodness, was it amazing. Also some additional stellar players here. We have Alice Kreese as the Borg Queen, who's sexy and horrifying at the same time. Amazing job. James Cromwell as Zephyrin Cochran, who's the legendary inventor of Warp Drive. And we get to see him being a being a real guy with real problems, and he, he nailed it. And Alfred Woodard as Lily, Cochran's sidekick, who has a ton of scenes with Patrick Stewart, and these two together were just, they steal the show, in my opinion. And Neil McDonough as the helmsman Hawk. Where is Will Wheaton in this one? It's okay. He was too busy uh, starting a board game podcast or something. Anyway, I know it was 96. There weren't podcasts yet. It was still radio. But anyway, just some history for those who haven't seen the film or it's been a while. In Star Trek Future History, I love saying that phrase, on April 4th, 2063, after a bloody Third World War, which decimates the planet, poverty, famine, and disease are at an all-time high, humanity takes its first warp flight under the helm of Zephyrin Cochran and makes first contact with a Vulcan scout ship, and a new era for humanity is born. We unite together and form the United Federation of Planets, but... A race of cybernetic organisms linked into a hive mind called the Borg travel back in time to stop our beginnings so that we may be easier to conquer as the Federation's been kind of stubborn to conquer down the road once we get all buff and cool and have lots of ships. <sighs> I gotta say, after the stunning and horrific attacks on our Capitol building and our very democracy on January 6th, 2021, I can't help but think about this film more. Our foundations being attacked. And also, not just by any enemy, the Borg. Again, a race of cyborgs all linked together. Sound kind of like a cult being brainwashed by a tyrant leader via social media? Hmm. 
Anyway, you get it. Joining me to talk about First Contact is dear friend, Star Trek expert, and Andy Plex alum, see episode four, Spaceballs the Podcast. Huge fan of this man. Welcome back, Adam Ferberg. Hi, everybody. Really glad to have you back. Really excited. Um, you and I had a Star Trek podcast for years together. Yeah, two years, from 2012 to 14. It's called The Jew and the Gentile. It was featured on Trek Radio, and it made every Monday night so much fun to come home to. Because like, we would do the show. We would do the show late, too, because it was live. It wasn't... It wasn't. It, I guess we would podcast it after the fact, but we did everything live, so there was no editing at all involved. And we, I would just I would just dump the track as it was on SoundCloud, but... Yeah, it aired on, on Trek Radio, which I still think is a thing. You, if you want to listen to it, all you have to do is play the Star Trek Online video game. I think you can access it there or go to trekradio.com or .net. I'm forgetting what the website is. But, um, .net, I believe. Yeah, every Monday night at 11 o'clock Pacific time, you and I would get together and just talk about Star Trek for an hour. And it was so much fun. And back when we didn't have any responsibilities or have to get up early at all for any reason, it was great just to stay up all night and talk Star Trek for an hour or two. It was fun. It really was. And I, I think of that time very fondly. And then we went to um, we went with Trek Radio to the big convention at the Rio in Vegas, which is... Yes, Vegas. multiple times. Yeah, we went a few times. And uh, I think you did the show for like four years. I think I did it for about three. Yeah, I um, did. I, I was doing it the first year um, with another person. And I went I went to the convention that first year. And it was... That blew my mind. Like, it was just unbelievable. I'd, I'd never been to a convention before, and then I ended up going to three more each of the consecutive years. <laughs> yeah. No, it's incredible. Um, massive, massive, like, main hall room, you know, with the stage. and Right. Oh, my gosh. I mean, if they didn't have screens to show what was on the screen, only the first chunk of the, you know, first mm-hmm. chunk of the auditorium could see the, the right. stage. It's that big. The, the scope and scale were just that massive. The production... Mm-hmm stunning the music and the displays and all the vendors and then you know the actors and writers and producers yeah we are Uh, my favorite are the the old actors with their own booths and you could just come up and talk to them or sign something or it was it was a really great way to interact with people that you grew up watching and just and listen listen to all their stories and really really cool really really inviting environment just a lot of people just being into the same thing that you are and getting it and getting you and, and hanging out for a weekend. Yeah, for sure. And, and Star Trek is it's such a community and it, it always feels right to come back to Trek. It, it just it feels good because it is good. It, it's a mm-hmm. good message. It's a good vibe. It's about growth internally and externally. It's about exploration internally and externally. And it, it's just it's always about inclusion and working together and, and working through differences to work in harmony. And it's just, it's the best thing ever. And I know you believe it as well. Uh, so I'm really glad I that do, we're... I do, I <laughs> do. Don't, I, don't I don't have to talk you into anything, I know. No. Um, but anyway, we, wrapping up 2020, we uh, were talking about how First Contact, the, or Star Trek Eight, is in its will be in its 25th year. Yeah, this November. It'll it'll be November 2021 will be its 25th anniversary. Wow, it's crazy to think. In my mind it's still the new Trek film. Mhm. Mhm. 
it's still yeah, when you when you watch the up. graphics i mean they're some of the 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 special effects in that movie are better than a lot of the stuff that you'll see maybe now like cg is caught up but like even like five or six years ago like the some of the choices that they made obviously they went with models that was still at the very end of models but it's just proof that like they had perfected that so well and maybe they got away with it for cost-cutting reasons but for years and years the alternative the the cg alternative that they would choose looked bad like it looked didn't look good and this movie still holds doesn't up. age yeah yeah and each exactly. time they re-up it like they re-up the resolution again a lot of times like when you look at cg from that era or even like maybe 10 years after that every time they up resolution a movie to like some new it was it's 20 uh, 1080p and then it was 4k they would look really bad whereas this movie with the models they look mm-hmm. even better and it's it's real it's tactile you can see it and there's something that clicks in the mind that says oh my god that's 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 happening that's real yeah i agree it's uh we talk a lot a lot about that very thing on this show and how certain things just don't age as well and um you know a couple years later, maybe they would have, like you said, made different choices and gone more computer or, or whatnot. And right. I'm really grateful that it just looks so good. It feels so mm-hmm. good. The story is so powerful. Feels and so right. Feels so right. <laughs> exactly. It does. <laughs> and I know, I mean, the 25th anniversary was the motivation to do this episode. Um, yeah. And, of course, that it's our favorite movie of all time. It's our favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talk about it all the time. We reference it all the time. Yeah, it's I I I I spoke uh, before you jumped on. I was talking to the audience how it's kind of my secret favorite movie. I don't always concede that it's my favorite movie. It depends like what circle I'm talking yeah, talking yeah, in. It, you know, if I'm it depends. A bunch sometimes of film it's nerds, the shining. I'm, sometimes it's the shining. Yeah, it's like a Kubrick then, movie if it's like right. film nerds around. Um, <laughs> and I love I love those movies, but there is something near and dear about this film specifically, and I I love most of the Trek films quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I really, I think most of them are actually really great, you know, but there's something about this one. And I think it has something to do with a, the Borg being the coolest villain and getting to jump into the Borg. Right. Which I want to talk about the Borg today, but it's something about going back to the moment, the first contact moment, first contact being the moment where humanity in the Star Trek timeline Mm-hmm. I talk about it like it's real because I I still feel like Justin Long from Galaxy Quest. It's like it's all real. <laughs> or or you know it, it's it, it that moment is the moment at least in terms of the fiction that humanity really changes for the better. Like it starts yes. putting it starts thinking of itself as you know it's not just the individual. It's the it's the, the the it's the individual maximized by working with the group. It's a weird, mm. perfect balance of being your own person, but also knowing that you're helping people get better, and everyone's getting better, and that's the whole point. Remember, um, they explain that I think in the episode "The Neutral Zone" season one of TNG. He says that the purpose is no longer to acquire wealth or material; it's to make yourself a better person and make those around you better people. That's truly the motivation of humanity in the Star Trek universe, and it starts with that day. Yeah, wow. I'm glad you brought up the Neutral Zone episode, the season finale of season one. Which is the first um, time that they reference who eventually will be the Borg. Remember? Like they're noticing all oh, the little yes, they're noticing right. all the cities being destroyed and all the stuff being scooped up. Right. They think it's the Romulans, the Romulans think it's the humans. Right. And they, they realize yeah. in the episode Q Who that the planets are all scooped out looking similar to the planets that were on the neutral zone. 
And yeah. I think that this was always supposed to be um, the aliens from the movie Conspiracy, but then when they did Q Who, they, that's when they came up with the Borg, and that's when they really set the wheels in motion for who these villains would be. Yes, yes. I'm really glad you brought up uh, Conspiracy, because originally the Borg were going to be this more insectoid race. Instead right. of going with, uh, to catch up the non-Trekkers, uh, the Borg are like a, they're a hive consciousness where they're, uh, they're all races that have been enslaved into this hive mind mm-hmm. where individuality is erased. And it's, you know, using um, cybernetic technology to kind of link us all together. Um, so it's a horrifying concept. And I like the idea of the queen in First Contact. It introduced the queen because yeah. I think they wanted to go with kind of more of a, like, the Borg are a hive mind. And there's no real one leader, per se, because they're just one consciousness. Right. But I think Even giving she it a is face... under the influence of the cybernetic consciousness. Almost. And, right. and, and I love how they reference later in the shows, as particularly with Seven of Nine, is once your link is severed, like it's so difficult to function outside of it that you almost lose complete confidence in yourself. I almost could imagine yeah. the, you know, the queen... It's. I wonder what disconnecting the queen would do. Like, I almost wonder if she couldn't mm. even survive for more than a few seconds because there's a power vacuum that would be applied there. She, the, yeah, it's. She wouldn't just be a drone who doesn't have commands. Like, she would literally not know what to do. She. It's. It's like a genius who doesn't know how to tie their shoes. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's right. just like they just don't have the computing power for a simple task like that. But. They can solve any theoretical physics uh, equation. You know what I mean? So it's yep. that's an interesting look at it too. Yeah, no, I, I I love all that, and yeah, I mean, and we're seeing we're seeing more of the ramifications of the Borg in in later Trek oh, and yeah. uh, Picard, which we get John Luke back, and I I want to go into some of the reasons why this movie is so powerful and is probably the best, you know, because I think, like you said, they get back to the first contact moment where we as a species unite. Right. And yeah, but so I think right now we're seeing such a threat to democracy in general, and especially here in the U S to this kind of mob mentality of brainwashing and lies about the election being stolen. Um, And I feel like it's a very dangerous rhetoric where you just start to believe lies and the, the brainwashing element makes me think of the Borg for so many reasons. Because the Borg conquer by assimilation, not through right. conversation, not through dialogue. Like the yeah, there's no there's, there's no back and forth. You're forced in whether you like it or not. Right. So in my mind, it is the opposite of democracy, where it's it's a it's fascism to the extreme where everyone is literally together in one hive consciousness is also a very terrifying idea physiologically um so honestly first contact just keeps ringing true and you know zephyrin cochran represents kind of the beginning of humanity reaching outward um and now that the capital is attacked it almost feels like the borg the borg are attacking our very foundations very much like in first contact where they go back in time and they are attacking the moment from which we started, basically, where, you know, before um, it was the Third World War, the economy was terrible, uh, you know, what was it, 600 million were killed or whatever, and then there was, like, this fallout, and and then there's a moment where we go to the sky and we meet the Vulcans and they come down and land in Montana, and it all happens. But now that's all being threatened by the time travel element, 
So from an allegorical perspective, I just can't stop thinking about First Contact. I know it's like my favorite <laughs> movie, so I can't stop thinking about it anyway. Yeah. So it's like, man, I, I really just feel like this is the perfect time, not just for the 25th, but in general, because, yes, Star Trek is fiction, but I think part of the reason what makes it such a powerful thing is it just has such a hardcore of people to it. There's conventions and because it has a rhetoric, it has a it has a philosophy of of growth and, and like you said, working together. And uh, so that's why I really feel like looking to Star Trek now more than ever. And Patrick Stewart even said that's why he came back to do Picard. He said he wasn't going to come back to do Picard anymore. The character was done. He wanted to move on. Um, but he felt like Picard literally needed was needed again. Yeah. Um, oh, and also when you look at the, the nature of... Uh, the Federation and there's specifically the show Picard, like it's the Federation now. And yeah. It, it's, 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 it's our world now, basically it's a, people right. who are, you know, trying to uh, uh, regress and go back home, like, like uh, uh, shut in and not help right. anybody and pull back resources and withhold things from other people and not helping people. A I, mentality I, of scarcity. Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, the line um, from Picard's interview in the first episode where the lady says, you know, so many, um, uh, she lists a number of like lives and she's like, Romulan lives. And he's like, no, lives. Like yeah. to him, life is That's life. Great. And it doesn't matter what you label you put on it. And I mean, you could take those words out and replace them with ethnicities that we have in our country now. And that conversation is the same conversation that people are having in their homes or on television, wherever, where it's like, uh, no, 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 not our lives, other people's lives. And he's like, no, 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 lives. Like that's that breakdown right. is, again, it's allegorical, but it's it's perfectly mirrors, I think, the kind of shut-in, jingoistic point of view that people have taken in the last... I mean, it's easy to say that it's been for five years, but it's been a lot longer than that. It just festered. Agreed. Yeah, this this pandemic um, has really shown the disparities and, and some of the things that we're, you're talking about now. And that's why I think modern Trek going kind of more, like you said, in more of the scarce mentality and more of the, the shutting in mentality and kind of facing that head on. It mm -hmm. actually is brave and strong. Uh, I know, I know. New Trek has gotten a lot of criticism, and I don't want to deviate too much into that because mm. we could do a whole series of podcasts <laughs> on that. But I people think who don't like those... new things—that's what's that about. But we can get back to that <laughs> yeah. later. No, but I, I think I think you nailed it on the head. It's it's about now, and I think we all need to hear that right now. You know, because yeah. and then in Discovery, um, which I know you and I love, in Discovery, the third season, we're tackling uh, the burn, which is dilithium, mm -hmm. which powers our ships. You know, without dilithium, there would have never been warp right it would have never been first contact and we would have never expanded so dilithium just explodes a lot of lives were lost so that it is this kind of dystopian future where yes technology has advanced in some ways but in a lot of ways it hasn't and there's the scarcity mentality and the federation's shut in mm -hmm. and i i just think it's perfect because it is exactly as you said so to kind of pivot back to first contact by showing humanity right on the cusp of about to basically get annihilated and then mm -hmm. coming together via Zephyr and Cochran and showing that and testing the Federation that way, I think is so cutting edge and it still is. Yeah. And it's also so fun to see Picard. Let's talk about Picard for, for, for a minute here. 
Um, Picard is the ultimate moral compass, right? He's the mm-hmm. ultimate weighing the scales. I mean, when you think of Picard, you think of him in a ready room, just laboring over a decision uh, from a non-biased, trying to do the right thing for all parties involved. And he's the ultimate, like, morality compass. I mean, when I think of Picard, I think of, it's like, he's like, he's like dad, you know? Yeah. He's like the good dad that's always going to do the right thing. Um, you may not always well, like it, but you know that you're going to learn something and you know that everyone will be better off for his choices. Yes, very well said. And so in First Contact, because of his prior... So First Contact is is tethered to the next generation. So you have you have the history of the show behind it and with it. But in, in Star Trek, the next generation, Picard becomes a Borg in a, in a cliffhanger called Best of Both Worlds. So Best it's kind of a... Of it TV is very much made. a sequel. Yes, exactly. And saved the show, apparently, which I didn't know until way later. Um, right. That it was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, loved, I loved the story of the background of that movie so much. Or that TV yeah. show episode. That TV it's show. It's a movie because we went to go see it in the theater when they edited it together. Cause, I know. They, they, when they did the Blu-rays, um, Adam and I got to go and see our favorite show on the big screen in downtown, AMC downtown. Yeah. Um, remember remember yeah. movie theaters? Remember those experiences? Yeah, right? <laughs> yes. Remember that stuff? um wow yeah a lot lot to reminisce on right now but uh i mean so he was assimilated by the borg and fortunately was was saved by his crew of the enterprise Mm -hmm. and and brought back and became an individual again so he was he was sent into the consciousness the hive consciousness he lost himself in it and then he came back out a lot of ptsd over the years which makes for a rich story of course and um, here we get to see the most tested and the most angry and the most just hellbent, I think, Picard. Um, hellbent might not be the right word because he's, he's, often, he's often very, like, got to get the job done. But right. his, his wanting to kind of destroy the Borg um, and, not make, and not sacrifice the ship made for some of the best movie material possible and to get to see Picard so tested. Right. This is not about revenge. Liar. This is about saving the future of humanity. John, look, blow up the damn ship. No. No. Sacrifice the Enterprise. We've made too many compromises already, too many retreats. They invade our space and we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds and we fall back. Not again. The line must be drawn here, this far, no farther. I will make them pay for what they've done. This Picard is very different from the one in Iborg, the one that had a disease that would have destroyed the entire collective, and he chose not to execute it. And right. and it's funny, maybe this is also part of him, like, I'm not making that mistake again. Because remember, he got he got chided <laughs> real hard by that one lady, that one uh, admiral lady. Admiral. I'm forgetting. Necheyev, I think, is her name. Cause yeah, I Necheyev, know the blonde. Too much ab- um, yeah, I know too much about Star Trek. I believe I believe she likes Bolian and Springwater. I love it. He, wa- he wanted to kiss her yep. ass in an episode, so he brought her Bolian and Springwater. And, uh, or maybe maybe like a, 
a certain snack. Maybe it was a certain snack that she wanted too, but he brought it for her because he knew he needed to win her over because she tore him a new asshole for not doing that. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, So it was uh, an episode after Best of Both Worlds, the cliffhanger. It was a one-off where they find they find a Borg who's damaged on a planet who was left <laughs> for dead. And he's a kid. He's like, he's a kid. He's, he's a teenager. If, you, if you'd if say Borg to teenagers, he was a teenager. Right. And... um. Would you mind looking up his name, actually? Because I know he came back um, in, uh, in Picard. Yes. In the actor. Jonathan uh, DeArco or something like that? Yeah, John DeArco. That's exactly right. John. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he came back in Picard, which was great. But that episode's amazing, and I'm really glad you brought that episode up. Because I think it's one of the best uh, Borg appearances still. Mm-hmm. And there were, there, were five, there were five, including First Contact with the Next Generation cast. Uh, Q Who, which they introduced to the Borg. They were introduced to the Borg. By Q, who sent them into the Delta Quadrant. Because right. Q thought Picard was a little cocky. Mm-hmm. And they could handle anything. And so they sent him out. And he was right. Yeah. He was yeah, right. No. Don't get me wrong. He was right. And I loved, I love that. That's Picard, though. He'll admit it. Yeah, How no, many people he, in that position? You don't get in that chair if you, don't, if you admit things like that often. But you have to. Yeah, no. He's very humble. Yeah, so... And then, uh, and then Best of Both Worlds, which really scarred him. He became a Borg, which still lingering. I mean, how could that not... Yeah, the, the PTSD from that's got to be intense. Yeah, losing your individuality, losing your your own self, and then being an accessory to murder to millions of people. Right, right, right. So the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine, which we don't get to see until a little bit of emissary in the beginning of, of Deep Space Nine. Right, which is another great. Um, wow, there's so much rich tapestry here. Well, listen, uh, we haven't even gotten to all the trivia that I looked up, so we'll, we'll get there eventually, I'm sure. Oh, great, great. Awesome. I'm glad you got some trivia for us. That's really cool. Oh, I do. I hope I know oh, it. Oh, 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 I do. I hope I know some of it. Otherwise, I'm going to feel really <laughs> sad. <laughs> um, but, and then, uh, and then again in Iborg where they find this Borg, and then they teach him how to be a person again. They teach him how to be an individual again. Hugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like you said, Picard, at the end of the episode, decides to send him back to try to teach individuality back to the Borg. Instead of... There was an opportunity, perhaps, to introduce a virus to destroy the Borg, but that just wasn't wasn't Picard's way. Um, but yeah, like you said, a lot more of a vindictive, vengeful look at Picard here from that perspective, which makes for great movies. And seeing the passion and the fury of 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 Patrick Stewart here. Can I share a certain piece of trivia with you now to kind of yeah. like blow your mind a little bit? So when they first crafted the script. It was going to be Picard on the planet with Cochrane, and it was going to be Riker on the ship with the Borg. And they changed, they decided oh. to change that dynamic. And I'm like, I'm so grateful that they did, because yeah. there's so much there for Picard to show that vengeful side. And I can't imagine a script where Riker is as motivated to do anything about the Borg. I, I just couldn't see him losing, his, losing control. Or at least yeah. it wouldn't make nearly as much sense. So it wouldn't I, make I, the same emotional. No. No, you have yeah. They they totally tapped into it perfectly, and it's great. Also, you can yeah. tell this is a script. This is a script by Ron Moore and and uh, Brandon Braga, who know Star Trek like the backs of their hands. They wrote the best script in the history of, uh, you know, the movies of the, sh- of the based on the show. I think this is the best one. So, yeah, yeah. No, I love that, and um, I want to get back to those those names specifically soon. But I want to just say, uh, Alfred Woodard joining the cast mm-hmm. um, really offered an outside foil to Picard so well in this movie. 
and she's the one who really gets through to him. And it really took, it really took her being like, oh, okay, Ahab, you know, and, and comparing him to, to Ahab from Moby Dick, which really got him to realize how. I have a lot of Star uh, of South Park references from this this movie, and I'll get to those later. But uh, the Ahab line is absolutely one of them. Captain oh, Ahab awesome! To get his way, huh? <laughs> I, lo- I love how much of uh, yeah, I love how big fans of Star Trek uh, Trey Parker and, and Matt Stone are. Um, Massive. Yeah, because they really, they really. I mean, they're clearly got to be to get the levels of reference that you're seeing is not just it's not just surface, so the- you know. The audio, they didn't even steal the line. They literally stole Patrick Stewart's audio from the no screen when he smashes the windows when she says, blow up the yeah. damn ship. No! Yeah. So there's a joke in an episode where one of the kids, Stan, wants to join a boy band. And the dad, uh, uh, Randy, destroyed his, Like, he threw away his life because he was in a boy band for a second. He had to come home and just kind of eat crow and accept it. And so he really didn't want Stan to do it. So he does... And they do that, no! And he bangs his head into, like, a cabinet and just yeah. smashes a bunch of glass. That's awesome. But they don't, even, they don't even record the no themselves. They just take Patrick Stewart's voice. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's amazing. I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't yeah. even know about that one. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, but um, I feel as if using an outsider to showcase how Picard has kind of lost it. And you know what? It was this last viewing, and, I, and I've seen a movie probably like you like a hundred times probably, you know, mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. Like seriously. Um, I'm not, yeah. I'm not no, even I'm, joking around. I don't even know how many times I've watched it. Cause I, I used to just put it on the background. Like, yeah. It was just background oh, yeah. music to me. Yeah, for some reason, whenever I was going home when I was in college or where, or once mm-hmm. I moved away, for some reason, the night before when I was packing, I would always put it on. I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, it was just like yeah. homecoming. It has, it's a homecoming vibe. Star Trek is such a homecoming feeling for me. Right. I um, mean, how much? How many Star Trek episodes take place strictly on Earth? Yeah. Not many. Not many. No. Not many. And this whole movie does. Yeah. No, it's cool to go back. And then the era that they landed on was so good. And... But yeah, I mean, Alfred Woodard and Alice Creech being the the non-TNGers um, in the fray, I really thought brought a really nice, fresh look into an outside perspective to kind of, for the, the foil's sake. And Alf, I feel like Patrick Stewart and Alfred Woodard together, it's a shame they didn't have their own show or, or movie after this. Like, or I, yeah. I really felt like the two of yeah. them together, there was something just so... Powerful. And there's no way to bring her, there's no logical way to bring her back, at least not her character into Picard, because yeah. she's from a different time period, so that doesn't quite add up, but yeah, it's right. a shame we're not going to get more, because the two of them have so much chemistry. chemistry. And you're right, it's it's funny um, that she and Picard have so much chemistry, because there's a scene uh, right before she goes in to tell Picard to blow up the ship in his ready room, she has an argument with Crusher about, no, he needs to listen. He's a crazy person. What are you talking about? And, mm-hmm. Picard, and Crusher's like, no, he's made his decision and that's it. Orders are orders. Yeah. And uh, normally you would think that Crusher would have the personality and the wherewithal and the, and the, the, um, the experience with Picard because she's known him much longer than just serving under him that she mm-hmm. would know how to get through to him. And it's right. interesting to me that that Alfred Woodward's character, Lily, her name is Lily in the movie, she is the one that actually 
tells her, I'm going to go do this. I, I, I'd love... It, it's a small connection. It might have just been coincidental that they chose Crusher to have that exchange with, uh, with Lily. But... The fact that if this was an episode of the TV show and there wasn't this outside character, it'd probably be Crusher doing that scene and then moving it to Lily really shows just how much Lily is not part of the crew. She hasn't been indoctrinated with the chain of command. And in this situation, that's what it took to get through to him. Yes, exactly. Well, you said it so well, Adam. Um, like I was saying, it, it really was this last viewing where I saw a parallel between Picard and Alice Creed is the Borg Queen. Uh, granted, two t- entirely different schools of thoughts. Two entirely different ways of looking at the coin. Um, obviously, Picard straight up hates the Borg and hates everything they stand for. And is still pissed off about being basically... Had his consciousness raped and taken from him. Um, but they're both two leaders where there's a, almost a blind follow... And and thinking about leaders with a blind following is just ringing in my head right now with with the capital attack right. and and all right. that. So I think maybe it took that kind of happening in current events for me to really see that parallel. But it was that moment where I was like, Picard has actually gone too far. You know, um, yeah. If if you can blow up the if you can blow up the Borg, blow up the ship, and, and get out of there, then you got to do and, it. And make you know make no mistake, the the blind follow can happen on either side of an equation. It yeah. really can, you know? So, like, words we've been hearing on the news a lot are in words like insurrection, which is funny because we're Star Trek nerds. There's a movie called And that's Star the Trek next film we're in, hearing, the, in the line. <laughs> we're hearing insurrection. We're hearing um, domestic terrorists. We're hearing a lot of buzzwords that make people who are scared want to defend themselves and pass new laws to defend themselves. And there's, there's a slippery slope to go down in that regard, too, because when you look at all the evidence of what happened at the Capitol attack... We didn't need new laws. We needed the ones that already exist to be enforced in the first place and law enforcement to have done their jobs. And, you know, the people who want to call themselves against what happened uh, at the Capitol, um, but they, they, you know, it's you have to be careful when you start passing laws uh, like domestic terror laws and, uh, uh, you know, insurrection laws, whatever, because typically they end up, they don't end up being used against uh, uh, the kinds of people that, made the Capitol riot happen. They end up being used against uh, um, activists, environmental activists who are trying to stop oil drilling and like chain themselves to a tree or something like, so there's always a slippery slope to go around too. If you start falling into the same kind of group think that you thought the other side was in. Yeah, no, I love that. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. And you know, I, I feel like the Borg, the Borg are such a great villain then, which was in 96. And then, you know, um, in, in, 19, in 1988, when they were introduced, where there's this fear of technology co-opting individuality, this fear of right. this fear of this kind of like I like the use word groupthink. Um, yeah. Like that's brilliant. And it's funny that technology exists. It's called Facebook. It's called YouTube, social media. Twitter. And yeah, it's yeah. called social media. Dude, it's funny. I have not been on my social media in over a week. Like, I'll check in just to see what's happening in the world, but I haven't posted in, like, a week. And I got to tell you, I feel great. You know what? I've been doing it less, too. And and then the times that I do go on, I'm like, why am I even doing this? You know? Yeah. Well, it's, that's the, the first thing I see is someone saying something stupid at the top and then a billion comments below about how that person's stupid. And, like, yeah. people are just mean and awful. And I don't know. Not that know. it's not impossible to have fun, but it's just unfortunate. That's just the first things that I notice when I'm when well, I'm. Well, I think the Borg represent when the tool becomes the master right like right okay like technology is here to stay i i think you know star, star trek 
Star Trek is about using technology to grow and explore and, and, and better ourselves inwardly right. and outwardly. Like, mm-hmm. and yeah, okay. M- money is erased and we work for the embetterment of humanity, which is fun to see those scenes with, with Lily and, and Picard talking about, you know, how she was, she needed to scrounge up enough titanium for what is a four meter cockpit or whatever the line was. Right. And, it, <laughs> and he's like, the economics, uh, money is not the driving force in our lives. And then she's like, you don't get paid. <laughs> um, so if anything, like it's so right on the money where, where technology can be the tool, but I think we're, we're in danger. And I think that's why the Borg is such a great villain because it represents the other way around where the, where technology is the master and we are the slave. And, mm-hmm. and that is a dangerous equation. And I think it's one that we need to look at right now. Um, I was actually just looking at a, a documentary on Netflix called the social dilemma. Oh yeah. Which is, was really good. And I'd love to talk about that more on, on the show, but I want to stick to first contact, but um, you know, it, it, it just all to me goes into why the Borg is such a good villain is right now we're in jeopardy of, you know, the fact that our president had to be banned from social media. I mean, what does that say? You know, um, right. And like, do the, you know, how us? much power to the people that like, they literally banned the president. How much power are they, we really allowing these people to have? But on the other side, yeah. like there are statistics that said because his Twitter account wasn't up fake false news was not shared as much there wasn't as much misinformation being shared because frankly he had 90 million followers no one knows how many of them were bots or real people and Mm -hmm. they were all sharing crazy stuff that wasn't that didn't exist and when he when the account was up they'd be sharing it or blowing it up or 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 bringing attention to it yeah no for sure and and now you know, once the lies and, like you said, the spreading of misinformation gets to the point where it can incite, granted, a a small but very loud, very, very loud group to to act and who attack are, the capital. Who are armed to the teeth. Who are armed, armed to, the, to teeth, the teeth. And and actually break into the capital during where where the entire Senate is meeting and, and, and going over something big. Um, Literally it, over crazy. the presidential votes. Like, they're literally right. certifying the votes. It, it wasn't just another day of business. Yeah. So, I mean, I know, I know we landed on First Contact for the 25th, and it's you and I were like, we're going to do an episode on First Contact eventually. And it was always, oh, yeah. It was always in the cards, but I just can't help but feel like this movie right now cannot be more on the money, scarily. Um, I wish yeah. it wasn't. <laughs> but. I think we all have to, this is a, a thing that individuals have to take responsibility for. If we are to be individuals and we are to have a true democracy, we all have to individually do our part to say, when have we been brainwashed? When have when is too much too much, right? When is right. too much time on social media starting to break us down? And and I, I knew there was a link to depression and social media use because of the comparative elements. And I know I've gone through it too. I made a sketch a few years back called Facebook Jealousy, where I, yeah, I played yeah, the I main guy. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a guy who's just stews in an apartment, like looking at the the accolades of other people posting, like, "Oh, I did this great <laughs> thing," and then he goes to their their place and uh, with with the baseball bat, you know, out of anger, and then it turns out like the person's actually really cool, and they're like, "Hey, I haven't seen you in years. Let's <laughs> hang out," and it like deflates it, and then they have like a bromance. How did this sketch end? Did it end where, like, you guys posted the same photo on Facebook, but his got more likes, so you ended up having to kill him? Uh, what happened was, is the guy that I went to go <laughs> beat up, 
I the guy I went to go beat up was like, hey, you're a great writer. You wrote that essay in uh, high school or whatever. Did you ever publish it? And then I was like, no, I never, I never actually, you know, did anything with it. And then he's like, oh man, I'm gonna help you like submit it. And you know, you were great. And uh, and then I I submit it, and I literally was just I was just posting that I did this awesome thing, like I wrote this essay. And then the door flies right. open, and it's somebody else with a baseball bat, like coming for me. <laughs> so it's the circle. That's funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um. But anyway. It's just, I can't help but feel like, yeah, I mean, now the point where literally we're having top tier officials having to get banned, you know, it's clearly gone too far. And it's something we all have to grapple with, like our relationship with social media. And because we can kind of hide behind our computer screens and we can, we, you know, things we would never in a million years say face to face to somebody. We could, we could right. say from the comfort and of our room. Again, rooms. like as a, as a comedian, you know, the, the social media tool particularly it was for two things one is posting about your show dates which i haven't had any in a goddamn year yeah so that I makes know. me a little sad but um it'll be back sir well it's the choice you want do you like in la nothing's open and then you can travel outside of la but you're still engaging in kind of unsafe activity and i'm just i'm just not going to take my chances but um the uh but i again i, I can't blame people who can't or, or have to because that's the only way they make money and frankly uh right. that's part of it it's really easy again again we're getting a kind of off topic here but it's really easy to think that people are lying to you when they shut everything down and then don't give you any lifeline to to have a dollar to make money yeah you know there was a there was a two-step process to making sure everyone followed the rules number one everyone's on the same page and then number two everyone's incentivized to do it and no one was on the same page which is the misinformation from the top which is you know one reason why the twitter account was shut down but mostly because they incited violence but most also because they just couldn't their stories were not straight sometimes they share straight up lies and then number two was people were broke and they were going broke and when that happens people snap they they storm the capital like it it ends up it ends yeah. up kind of being a self fulfilling prophecy, um, but uh, back to the point. What was my point before? Because I totally blanked on it. Um, no, um, I think I think we're right in the the wheelhouse of talking about you know the Borg and technology and misinformation and and brainwashing and but I, but I think it's a complicated remember, time like, right now. You know, and the purpose of the Federation again is to better everyone else around you, not just yourself. Mm. There is an individual. I hate the phrase. I hate to use the phrase "individual mandate" because again, it, there's a political connotation to it in our country. But there is a personal individual mandate in the Federation to not only do best the best that you can do, whatever it is you choose to do, but then also contribute to the betterment of other people. Yeah, and those are the those, that's how you get paid. You almost get paid in self worth. I know. Like that's really what it, like self worth. Like the only the the thing that really truly combats mental illness. Is giving somebody a sense of self worth, and that is literally the currency. Is can, have you can you be honest with yourself that you have made yourself a better person, and have you have you made other people's lives better around you? And you know, we just it's it's I, I that's I think that's why you and I are so attracted to the franchise is because that's literally the pers the purpose of existing in this universe to make yourself a better person and bring joy to and and betterment to everyone around you, and you know. Unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in and we see it every day. I know. No, and, and you know, the Federation and the parallel in the Federation with the United States or the world and, you know, humanity in general once, I know, I, I'd like to see us all come together. And it's the focus on the division that I, that I hate so much. And, 
you know, like dividing us, like even on the on the, on the issue of masks and the pandemic and, and coronavirus, like it shouldn't be simple, simple medical advice. Yeah, it shouldn't. It's, it's not subjective. politicized. It's but and that's the thing. We live in such a politicized environment. And I think that's again, that's that's the way the technology that should make our lives better and more connected ends up being used. Because, yeah. you know, there's a buck to make off scaring people. There always has been. So Well, yeah, and, and, and I think scaring people and, or trying to divide the, the nation has had worked for Trump for a while. Um, and, you know, the it's, fact that so been, many people a, still supported him, you know. You right, know? right. And, that, and but again, I, I think that he is not, don't get me wrong, he is kind of an end all. Like, he is like what you get. But he's what you get when all these other things started to happen. The division, the misinformation, the, yes. the you know, frankly, the bankrupting of a lot of people. Like, you know, people don't know who to trust and who to turn to. And history's always shown that when you put, when you make this perfect little tinderbox, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that authoritarian megalomaniac always ends up on top. I know. No, exactly. And the cyclical nature of history with, it's like, we've got to look, we've got to look back. Uh, John Gallagher and I talked a lot about this in the Shining episode, where we think the Shining is really about the danger of the cyclical nature of history if we don't learn from it. And I don't want to get too wrapped up in that, but I really feel like Star Trek is such a way of showing the positive, whereas the Shining is more of like the horror of the negative. And like right. we don't want that. But hey, listen, but this is what this, we want. Particularly first contact. Particularly first contact shows that horror. I mean, they always people always say this is the Star Trek zombie movie. This is the Star yeah. Trek horror movie because, again, while it isn't doesn't pervade the entire movie, there are certain things that are utterly terrifying. Horrifying. The, the flashing, the flashing red lights when they open the turbo lift. Oh yeah. Um, uh, the first time someone gets assimilated and Picard has to shoot him. Ensign oh, yeah. um, Lynch. Yeah. Help. Or this the, the first the first time that you see um, uh, the first time that you see Data hurt himself when you see skin being grafted mm. on his body. And then he tries to break out and he scratches himself. Yeah, like, I wasn't programmed to that's, process these sensations. Right. And like just to see you saw we saw data bleed. Like that's yeah. that's scary to me. That was that scared me when I was twelve when I saw it in the theater. No, I, I love that you're touching on the horror elements. Um, because yeah, the Borg are they really and they had the budget to really you know, they were scary from the get go, don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not trying to take anything right. away from the, the, the episodes of the show, but now it's like you really got some money to play with. And you right. get to see the scope of you get to see basically Wolf three five nine. And now you know what I, I in part of my trivia, looking up the trivia of the show or the movie, um, I didn't know how many of the Borg sets they reused on Voyager, but oh, they yeah. basically never they never threw anything away. They saved them and they would just repurpose them a lot. And I think they spent so much money on the new makeup and the new Borg technology and the new Borg sets that. Because again, it almost Voyager almost turned into the Borg show after season um, four, I want to say. Yeah, and it it made it number one. They needed a villain to draw people in. The ratings weren't as high as they wanted, and I think they made a right call with that. Um, but also, they had these sets that they spent a ton of money on. So why not write a bunch of Borg episodes so we can use them and show off the, all the cool stuff we have? Yeah, I didn't even real. I didn't put that together, but that totally makes sense from a, a budgetary production standpoint. Right, and I remember watching Voyager as it aired, and then it was after First Contact, and right. the the look of the Borg changed in First Contact, and then they they kept that continuity and they kept that in, and that's yeah. that's where it, they had that before they were kind of like ghosts. Yeah, they were pretty much just like pale white. 
Right, and now they look like zombies. They look like they were degrading underneath all that. Yeah, you're right. There was like kind of necrotic tissue kind of pulsing. And, r- r- yeah, yeah, know, yeah. The yeah, makeup yeah. got it grosser. Was, yeah. um, it did. Yeah, and the introducing of the nanoprobes was, was also, yeah, like they had to inject the, the, the tubes that would come in and inject them. Right. Um, so they would take you over on a cellular, cellular level. Uh, mm-hmm. and, then, and then in Voyager, they ended up using the nanoprobes to like, they actually had to work with the Borg, which was really cool. Um, right. I love Voyager. And then how about, how about uh, Robert Picardo appearing as the EMH? Little Voyager. So good. Overlap, and Ethan Phillips so, in the bar. So funny. Yeah. So God, he, he the scene, the EMH scene, and I particularly love how Crusher says the line, "I swore I would never use one of these." I love, like, I bet you, there's a. I love the line, and again, it's talking about how like people don't want to quite give in to technology. Like, yeah, she's like that's not a real doctor. I know. I'm a real doctor, and that makes me wonder yeah. if there were actually like Star Trek medical uh, personnel that was like, "Ugh, never, never." Yeah, this. there was a, there was I've a stigma. There was a stigma. There was it, and I bet you there are people probably in Star Trek Medical who are Starfleet Medical who like some are totally about it, some are not into it at all, and then they judge each yeah. other based on how they use the EMH. So yeah, the emergency medical hologram, which in Voyager they lost their um, chief medical officer in the first episode, <laughs> and activating the EMH, and then he became and I love it. Chip, great, you know this is classic Trek. Uh, someone programming you know going beyond the limitations of your programming to become something more become right. a life form a holographic life right. form they refer to him later right. do you remember the episode with andy dick when they send uh i think it was called, oh yeah i think it was called something in a bottle um ship in a bottle ship in a uh and it's um or is it message in a bottle message in a, message. a bottle ship in a bottle message is the moriarty one yeah that's one of my favorite Voyagers. Number one, because we get to uh, he, uh, the Doctor gets to be in the Alpha Quadrant for a second, but then also yep. we get to see the Prometheus, which is badass. And then um, Andy Dick, who's you know funny in the episode, is wearing one of the new uniforms, and he's the and newer so, version of the EMH. He's the newer version, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, he's you're the, the you're version. the old one, the, you're the old one that had like the bad bedside manner, and you know you were you were phased <laughs> out actually. And he's like, what? <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, the which has got to be hard to hear from someone. Yeah, there's a lot of comedy there, but then also, like, you have to think, on one hand, sure, he's made up of old technology, but he is the most self-actualized version of any of those guys who ever existed. He's the only one who's been activated for more reasons than one emergency. Ah, the EMH overlap was great, and I remember being, you know, you could see what they were doing. They were, like, rewarding all the fans, and, and there was that right, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the golden era of Trek, which I guess we're, we're back into a new golden era where there's lots of Trek again. Right, but ni- 96... That year, 96, was the absolute high watermark of Star Trek. And even with all the new stuff that's out, I still don't think that they've gotten back there yet. Because, um, and it'll, they'll prove me wrong if they make a new movie right now and it goes number one to the box office. Because if we want, we can get into box office numbers if you want to hear about that. I looked that up. But oh, yeah. um, Star, Trek, Star Trek First Contact came out and was number one at the box office. It beat... Let me see. It beat Space Jam. That was the previous week's oh, number man. one. Oh, man. Yeah, that was 96, right? That was 96. And Space Jam Space Jam was number one for a minute, too. It wasn't It wasn't just like... So it was a big deal that they knocked this off. And then... And it was the week before Thanksgiving in 96. So Thanksgiving weekend in 96 was the second week of Star Trek First Contact. It lost to 101 Dalmatians. That was the, the live-action one with Glenn Close. That was the big Disney movie that they were marketing the hell out of, so it was going to be hard to maintain. But they were still number two, and the movie it did well. It did really well. Yeah. Um, 
I think, let me look up the total amount. It, to date, it made $89 million at the box office on, I want to say, a, um, oh, sorry, it made $92 million worldwide. And then let me look up the budget. Um, the budget was $45 million, and I've actually seen adjusted number of 146 So it uh, uh, tripled That's good. its box office number, which is very, very good. Yeah. And it beat for, uh, Space Jam, lost to 101 Dalmatians on Thanksgiving, which, you're, it's re- especially in the 90s, you were not going to beat the Disney movie uh, on, on a holiday weekend. It yeah, that's, that's crazy. I, I remember yeah. the ad for uh, for Scott and it was, it's ID4 for the holidays. And ID4 yeah, yeah, being yeah, Independence yeah, yeah. Day... And yeah, that was that was just a few months prior in uh, in the summer, um, so they were going for that kind of sci-fi element, and I really feel like First Contact is the one that transcends until maybe the reboot. I think it, that opened it up to more people. But right for a long time, I was like, if you didn't like Trek, and I was trying to get you to like Trek, I would I'd be like, watch First Contact. So watch think, First Contact. Yeah, you watch really, watch it this. Provides- it provides enough context as to what happened to Picard, even though there's a whole two episode arc and ep- episodes that follow that kept building up to it. Yeah. But yeah, no, uh, first contact. I almost would show this almost ahead of Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Which is, it's there's a lot of parallels to that one now too because they're mm-hmm. both based on episodes. They're both based on previous encounters with a villain. Just oh, depending yeah. on how you look You're at right. what that villain was. Um, it, it looks at uh, one's fitness to serve because remember Kirk's thinking about retiring, and in this one Picard is having you know he he can't separate his emotions from his duty. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of parallels with those two films uh, as well, and uh, yeah, so it's hard. It, but I would no first contact is still my my top. I I think it just it it this the scope and the stakes and the scale are just yes it's i mean yes. it's humanity if they fail if they fail the borg win there's no federation game over right you know You're right so let's say let's say uh, let's say if um uh they didn't survive the explosion at the end of wrath of khan right mm-hmm. so you'd khan would still die yes the enterprise would blow up but you already spock's already dead so there's one main character dead and then so Genesis exists, and then it would eventually crumble. When you think about it, the stakes are bigger in First Contact because it's literally humanity in the balance. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, we would lo- we would lose our favorite crew for in, in the in, in Wrath of Khan. No doubt about it. That would suck. There wouldn't be any more movies. But it wouldn't decimate the humanity in that timeline. Whereas here, time, mm. humanity's done. Yeah, and I, I think it just going back to the moment, the inception moment of of the Federation, essentially the warp flight that connects us i love the parallel between cochran having to really come to terms with i have to make this flight i have to overcome remember he got into it because he wanted money that's what he said i wanted money i want an island with naked women yes and he wanted he wanted to drink and that's all he wanted he doesn't even like to fly he likes trains like he's not the person (laughs) that everyone's built him out to be and the movie makes you think is picard the person that we've thought he was for all these years because we're seeing a whole new side of him that we didn't even expect and they both overcome it, and they're both better people for it. So I see a parallel in both their developments as well. That's that's amazing. I, I love that. And I'm really glad you touched on the Zephyrin Cochran thing. I really want to talk about that. So oh, yeah. Zephyrin Cochran is this historical figure in, in the future history of Star Trek that, you know, he's the visionary that invented warp drive. He's the man responsible for us becoming more than just Earth, re- reaching out 
Um, and then getting to see him as a human, which all humans are, are flawed and have their weaknesses. He's, yeah, yeah. he's an alcoholic. Like you said, he's doing it for the money. Um, you know, we're all products of our time. And I think this is a great look at how we kind of put people on a pedestal. You, you made a statue oh, of yeah. me? There's a statue? Listen, <laughs> you told him about the statue. You told him about the statue. Uh, listen, you talk about putting people on a pedestal. I just watched the two-part doc on HBO about Tiger Woods. And you talk about put it, being put on a pedestal and what that has to do to a person to the yeah. point where they can't even feel like they're human sometimes. You're this thing. And, You're this and the things yeah. that they do to fill that void and the lies they have to engage in to maintain that image in spite mm. of needing to fill that void. It's, it's sad and it's self-destructive and uh, it, hap- it happens multiple times. And again... It all stems from people really trying to believe that someone is someone that they're not. Yeah. The projection onto people. Yes. You know, yes. like, uh, I know people say, like, I mean, like, Thomas Jefferson, for example, like, owned slaves, you know. But that was... Right. You know, it's it's sad, and that sucks that, that that was the way it is, but they're living in the time period that they were living in, you know. I'm not trying to condone mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, I, I love how this movie explores that element, and then him being projected on by the future version uh, so beautifully. I right. mean, how great is right. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Who, Barkley for a second. And Barkley's like staring yeah, at yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, like oh your, I like your point that you just made. Like everyone that you think they are, they're not. There's something bad about them that you're going to learn about that you're not they're going people. to like. That they're people. They're humans. Very, they're, it's very questionable. And yeah, it stems from them being human. Yeah, and that doesn't make – and this movie – and I love how you said the parallel with Picard. I think that's really brilliant. I didn't actually even think of that because – Picard, like like we said in the beginning, is this moral. He's the kind of perfect moral authority, right? You know, who will always weigh everything out as much as he can and make the appropriate call. And like you said, it might not always be the the one that you like to hear, but it's the right doing doing. What right. is it? Uh, doing something the right way is not the same as doing. I forget. Anyway, or no, like the the easy way versus the right way. What is it? Right. Anyway. Yeah, uh, you can do things the easy way or you can do it the right way. Yeah, there, there it is. So seeing him tested because he is human and he was, you know, he was enslaved by the Borg. He, he was, I mean, what a horrible thing to have to go through. Um, and how could you not have some emotion around that? And I think it's our right. emotions that make us uh, the ability to empathize and grow and learn. I wouldn't want to strip our emotions away because I think the, the, uh, the other side, the other extreme is is being part of a hive consciousness and that's not the right way either. So being right. an individual is good. And Star Trek's all about that, you know, the final frontier being space, space, the final frontier, but also mm-hmm. going as much inward as going outward and growing and learning within and doing, doing the homework internally is just as important as doing the, the external homework of, of meeting right. others, you know? So, yeah. and listen, f- if, you, if you don't do that work inside, everything you put outside isn't real. Oh, I love that. That's great. You know, like it, there's no there's no substance to it, and eventually the emptiness inside you're going to have to fill it somehow. Yeah, and it, you it never really results in, in very well. So yeah. So in regards to Zephyrin Cochran being this kind of human, he's got a little bit of a drinking problem. I mean, it's times are tough. You know, he just had a third world war. Nobody governments don't trust anybody anymore. Nobody trusts anybody. Uh, like you said, there is this more of ripping apart than coming together, kind of like the pandemic. 
Um, right. And then you get this guy who we don't have time to argue about time. They don't have time. <laughs> they don't have time not to just say it to his face that if we don't do this warp mission tomorrow, then then everything's going to go away. So they have to convince him. So you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. Actually, I think it was the only time <laughs> got that the titular uh, line. Yeah, James Cromwell is, I think, the only actor and the only character as Zephyr Cochran to say Star Trek. I that's, believe that's, right. That's uh, maybe my favorite swear check drift is when they're like, "So you guys are all assholes on some kind of swear track." <laughs> oh yeah, Adam got me into this too. It's called Swear Trek. It's on Twitter, right? It's a Twitter account, but it's you can get it like on any GIF maker or two. But yeah, it's 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 mainly a Twitter account. I think it's at swear underscore trek or just at swear trek, and it's basically Hilarious. just GIFs of Star Trek scenes and just a lot of curse words put over it. It's a lot of fun. It's silly. Don't show your kids; they're not gonna. It's not good for them, but uh, for adults, <laughs> for adult fun. Yeah. Once you've done the internal homework, you can then take it on. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, I love the portrayal of Zephyr Cochran as just a guy, and and that is really a thing. And and I think by almost coming at him that strong, and you know, uh, who's the actor that plays Barkley? I love that he's in this movie, Lieutenant Commander Barkley. Oh, Dwight Schultz. Dwight Schultz. So, Thank you. Dwight Schultz is the guy that would absolutely like embarrass himself in front of his heroes. Like yeah. he's just he is that little kid when he gets like that. Yeah. And and which is a perfect encompassing of just like creeping somebody out, like someone. Who, again, it's one thing if they were famous and they're like, I have to just deal with this. This guy doesn't even know that what's going to happen. And it's what's funny is that they end up, when he's arguing with Riker about like, you guys have the wrong image of me. Riker yeah. even has to use a line that he ends up using in the future, which makes you wonder who told whom? Who said it to whom? Mm. Who said it first? That weird parallel of... Don't be a great man. Just be a man. And let history tell the story or something. That's Which, rhetorical by the way, nonsense. Who said that? You did in the future. It's uh, that, That's actually used in South Park up too. At, uh, oh, nice. <laughs> I think the kids the kids tell that to Jesus as he's fighting Satan in boxing. Oh, my God. They love Star Trek. I, I'm, that's oh, so yeah. cool. I, lo- he's I like, love He's like, dude, that. that was in the Bible. That was Star Trek. That's actually a line from the show. Man, that's so cool. Well, wow, yeah, right. Like who? It was like in Star Trek Four. Like who invented who invented transparent aluminum? You know, right? Because uh, Scotty showed the guy who invented it how to invent it, but then how could he invent anyway? The times, right. the time stuffs. You know, the parallels, the 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 conundrums that the can, man's a menace. The man's a menace. <laughs> it's like twenty four <laughs> temporal violations. Talking about temporal police. Yeah, talking about Kirk, Lieutenant um, Lieutenant Timeman, temporal police. Yeah, but James Cromwell. Uh, nailed this part, and um, mm-hmm. so he was in an episode little of TNG. Bit of, yes, little bit of trivia. They actually wanted they wanted Tom Hanks, but he oh, couldn't is that do right? it. They the writers wrote it with Cromwell in mind, but the producers wanted to get Tom Hanks. It's, it's Tom Hanks. Like you know, don't get me wrong. James Cromwell just came off an Academy Award nomination for Babe, which is one of the least likely Academy Award nominations you'll ever see. A kids' movie about a talking pig ends up being a massive hit. That gets a billion award nominations, including every single one for James Cromwell, and he came off that. And but but again, like, do you want the guy who just was nominated for best actor is a great actor, but and you you know you've worked with him before, or do you want Tom Hanks? Yeah, and that was a. I, and the only reason why we got Cromwell is because Hanks couldn't do it, and I'm so glad that it worked out that way because Cromwell absolutely 100 percent nailed it. Yeah, I think there's something we said when there's an actor because there's so much. 
baggage with with actors that you recognize um right you know you kind of and, and especially in this life. environment they might have i don't want to say that he would have because tom hanks is can be very deferential in a scene he's not the kind of actor that eats up a scene when he doesn't need to but it, there's a possibility that he might have been a little bit too big i don't know it's weird because you could say well he would have drawn in a bigger audience well the movie was no more to the box office did they need his help yeah, but yeah, it's it back and forth. But in the end, I'm I'm really glad that Cromwell got it. Yeah, Cromwell's great. And then I feel like I've I've seen him in a million other things since, and I'll always know him as right. Zephyrin Cochran, uh, no right. matter what. And he was in like uh, Six Feet Under, the show about the Undertakers. Uh-huh. Um, he was like the dad. And he was, and I think he was in American Horror Story, wasn't he? He was in American Horror Story. Yeah, he was like a yeah. creepy surgeon in the yeah in their in their hospital season. Yeah, in the asylum, yeah, hospital. Oh, the the asylum, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was he's great. Um. Yeah, he's he's played villains, he's played heroes, he's he's an awesome actor. I know that he worked on an episode of TNG, and they always talked about wanting to bring him back, and then they ended up bringing him back for this. Um, and yeah, I, I can't I can't see anybody else. Well, let's talk about because um, it was actually last year in 2020 during the pandemic, uh, they did a viewing of First Contact where Jonathan Frakes watched First Contact like basically on the internet and kind of via it wasn't like twitch but it was like kind of like twitch where there's the side chat room and you could talk and sure um, yeah, yeah and uh he was like i haven't watched first contact the movie i directed in 15 years and i was like wow i've watched it like five times a year since then <laughs> maybe maybe 20 times a year i was like i definitely have seen this movie more than the director of the movie which is pretty cool um but <laughs> he said that he's like oh well they wanted spielberg or that whatever they wanted you know they wanted ridley scott and then you know they tried and um, and they ended up landing on, on me, um, Jonathan Frakes. And I feel like what you said earlier, let's talk about the writers. So we got Brandon Braga, vet alum, massive vet and alum, uh, Ron Moore, vet, a vet and alum. They were the two that penned the screenplay. And then right. Rick, Rick Berman got a story credit. Uh, so he was the head of Trek at the time. So you get these guys that have been with it for so long and get it so well. And I think that ended up being such a big part of the movie being so great because it wasn't oh, just yeah. a sellout. Like, sure, it was big. It was larger than life, but it was Trek. It was about yeah, us going out into the stars. Every one of the actors, at least in this movie, I mean, you can't, it's not fair to ask like the original Star Trek actors, what they think of their, of all the movies. Mm-hmm. But in terms, because I don't, I don't know if anyone asks like which one your is your favorite one. But when the next gen actors are asked which is your favorite movie, they all agree, First Contact is the best one. It's not even close. Right. I remember I looked up I looked up some trivia on like their personal experiences, and Sirtis Marina Sirtis who plays Troy says that she actually ended up having more fun on the set of Generations, but she even admits like this is the better movie. So like everyone just agrees that. Whether experiences or not, this was the best film that they had made, and there's no doubt about it. Yeah, I know. I actually I watched uh, a sci-fi making of First Contact. I want to say it was from like '98 or '99, so a few years after. Uh-huh. Um, like it was the Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, it was definitely, and it had some of the old commercials in it, and it was on YouTube. And there was an interview with oh, Marina Sirtis, cool. and she was like, "I would have never thought in a million years that Deanna Troy would be the comic relief, because um, she's always like the emotionally connected, like serious, like." Always got to like get to the bottom of her emotions and dig deep and dig into the dark. But she got to play the kind of she was trying to get to Cochrane but had to get drunk. And she did such a right. good job playing drunk. And that scene She's with her so and Riker. Good at it. 
We don't. Oh, you're blended, uh, all right. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's a primitive culture. <laughs> it's just a primitive culture. Just and it's like trying don't to touch blend me. in. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. She That's did such, such a, a good job. Line. And um, yeah, I just uh, I I love that I about about her, and I really think she she nailed it here. And so we really got to, we really broke this movie up into three chunks, whereas normally they kind of all to be together. Maybe there was the bridge and the away team. Um, right. But here we get to have, so what's going on in the bridge with Picard, what's going on down on the planet with Cochran, and then Riker and Geordi are with them, and Barkley and those guys, mm-hmm. and Deanna Troy. And then we get Data and Alice Kriege. And I want to talk about Data and Alice Kriege for a second. How good they are together. Steamy. Steamy. I remember being so turned on by Alice Kriege as the Borg Queen as a, okay, I was only, let's see, 12. And I was like starting to become a teenager and starting to have these, you know. Something about wires sticking out of her head that really got you going. Really got me. I know. I was like, <laughs> I remember turning to my buddy and be like. Something about how her spine cause descends from the ceiling and then drops into her body that really gets me going. Really gets you. <laughs> no i know i remember being very like it was a very complicated feeling um i was trying to unpack that after leaving the theater all three times i saw it in the theater and i was just like man she's so she's so hot and there is this kind of like sexuality to it which i think is so great because as you know i love the borg as a villain i love the hive mind but getting to see this kind of like sensual almost oh, yeah. hauntingly beautiful and make no mistake she's she's doing it to get to data she's not doing it because she necessarily likes data although she's absolutely intrigued because he is 100 percent a unique individual there's no one else like him yeah so to assimilate him into the collective is her 100 percent goal and it's funny that she does it with human skin grafting right so he's already cybernetic so now he needs the organic and then remember they're a mix of both so she gives him mm-hmm. organic skin and he he is successfully able to uh, deceive her into thinking that he's on board with everything that she does. But um, yeah, I, I love the parallel of making him look more human so that he can be a more human, but also more Borg like when he maybe you know, he probably knew that, but she probably didn't think he knew that all she probably thought he saw was the skin that he wanted. And she uses sex against him to win him over because remember she even gets him to admit the last time he was sexually active was with tasha yar from the first season though that's what he's referring to when he lists all that time he's referring to the naked naked now episode i am uh, season one fully functional fully functional in multiple forms. <laughs> i know yeah naked, naked now eight where months, everyone's having sex eight with years each other four and... months two minutes i love how he says like two minutes three seconds and i'm like man if i was a virgin that long i'd know it too <laughs> I would know the exact second the last time I got laid if it had been eight years. Oh, man. It's been three times that for me. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, four times, actually. Um, so, yeah, no. And, how old am uh, I? That I, love how, and I love how you tapped into that, how, how they're testing each other. And there's, there's such a, it's such a juicy chemistry on screen because she's appealing, she's appealing to his desire to want to be more human, to get to him, like you said, to get the, the fractal encryption code to undo the a lock on the computer to gain control. Right. But right. there is this, and I really I really feel like it transcends, and I guess we'll never know, but I feel like it transcends just wanting to get the codes. I feel like to him, she, you know, Data represents this kind of like unconquerable thing um, because He's they're not organic. Toy. He, he is a new toy. 
that will and again his assimilation will probably improve the borg in general like yeah. he's not just another drone there's no way he could be just another drone and remember when it seems like data is going to give in to her and they're about to assimilate picard picard assumes he's going to be locutus again nope it's going to be a drone yeah he'll and make, that's that's he will data. make an excellent drone <laughs> Right, and that's yeah. because Q, uh, Data's the new Lucutus. Like that's right. that's his. He's going to be that guy. Yeah, and yeah. That's, let's that's talk about that. For what a she offers him. Right. She, essentially, I think the Queen is offering him like a kingship. Yeah, yeah. So I love how they inject uh, the Queen into Best of Both Worlds in the flashbacks, where yeah. uh, they they so they basically they assimilate Picard, but not just to assimilate him, but to bridge the gulf between humanity, like. Like kind of like a diplomat liaison, so having an individual representation, like a, a proxy, if you were, uh, right. we've seen that before. So kind of a leader, but more of a face to bridge the gulf and and to, to merge totally. the worlds together. So mm-hmm. I love how they build off of best of both worlds, and like you said, using data to kind of replace what they wanted from Picard. I thought was so brilliant. It's like I already have data. I don't need you anymore. But then Picard, yeah. Picard's like, Lily, I got to go back for my friend. They risked everything to save me when the Borg captured me. I have to go back for Data. Um, mm-hmm. I lo- and I love that kinship. And then it culminates. And the storylines all culminate together at the end, at the climax of the film, as good filmmaking and storytelling does. And he also, I like how he's also kind of able to, ha- um, to have his cake and eat it too. Like, he he's not going to blow up the ship. He's accepted that he's going to let everyone go and 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 they're not going to save the ship it's done for but he still has to try to save data and it's funny in one respect that might have been the motivating reason why he was like we're not leaving the ship but he couldn't even admit it and it's funny before he could admit that to himself he was actually going to destroy everybody yeah and not save data and not save anyone else's lives so he was actually able to it was a win it was almost like a win-win scenario not necessarily because he was going to come out victorious but he was still able to tell himself i did what i could for data while also saving everybody's life yeah no and he conquered his inner demons of the vengeance and the hatred that he was harboring like ahab um if his chest had been a cannon he would have fired his heart Captain ahab has to get his whale huh yeah i mean you get to the test of all these characters so well and like even data admits after the fact he's like i was tempted by our offer how long data? It was like zero point six eight seconds Which for an android. A, the android, that's an eternity. That is an eternity. So you get <laughs> you get the most, and I think that's why this is the best film because it tests the metal of these people and really puts them through something where they have to face their dark side and grow. And there's even things there's even things that she says that are probably true. Like Data's asking all these questions and they're really wordy and you know you know, about his physiology as, a, as an android and how do you do this and that. And, and she's like, you always talk this much. You know, your, your android brain is capable of so much more. So she really does show him more than the sum of his parts, which I think is ultimately what Star Trek's all about. And to hear that right. coming from the villain, you know, that, that's a good, rich villain. I mean, a good villains are yeah. not just, ah, we're bad, rah, you know, like, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. offering hey, listen, he, analysis. He lies to her. He lies to her when when she, when she he says that he's not frightened or when, when he scratches his arm oh, and yeah. says that he just doesn't know how to do this. And she's like, no, you're lying to me. That's not true at all. Yeah. You're becoming more human all the time, Data. Now you're learning how to lie. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's so many good lines in this movie. I mean, we could go on all day, you know, and Picard the calling, uh, the whole movie is quotable front to back. You know, when Picard yells at, at Worf and says, you're a coward because you want to run, run away. But really, he's being a coward by, I feel like it's the conversation. It's like they, Star Trek wants us to think. It wants us to mm-hmm. really think about the human condition. And I think that there are elements of working together. And, you know, like, like we were talking about with social media, like the world is more organized through the Internet than ever. And even since 96, I mean, how much more has the Internet become part of our lives where it's, right. it's our media now. Sure, there's still cable, but how many people are cut, cutting cutting the cord, per se? You know? Mm. So I think Star Trek's not always saying that, like, one way is good and one way is bad. But I think once you take something to the extreme in either direction, like Picard learned a lot, learned a lot from the Borg and learned a lot from Alice Kriege as the queen. And, and Data learned a lot from her. Um, and in some senses grew. But... When you are willing to enslave everybody under one singular consciousness, one mind, that's fascism to the extreme, right? right? So that's bad. But there are shades of gray. So I love that Star Trek is really about analyzing those things and not just writing one off like immediately. You know, there has to be a conversation. And for democracy to work, there has to be a conversation. So it's not the technology itself social media is not innately the problem uh, maybe it is and we're all in trouble but <laughs> like no, listen we technology that connects people is not necessarily right i agree with you it's not technology that connects people is a good thing it's how that technology is used so right. like specifically with facebook um the most vitriolic post the post that incites the most negative emotion is going to be favored by their algorithm because they want the thing. They don't necessarily care if it gets likes. It can get thumbs downs and it can get angry faces and it can get crying faces. The point is they want that number of reactions to be as high as possible. And they want the, the word is actually engagements, which I just learned. Enga- engage- right, right, right. Yeah. And they want they want the number of comments to be sky high. And what are you going to comment on somebody's joke? Eh, maybe, maybe if you have a funny tag or something. But if a simple joke about someone doing laundry, it's funny. Sure, it's it can be funny. Don't no doubt about it. But an, a post calling um, a president or a senator or a mayor an asshole or you know something racist, which is not not okay, but it's going to get the reaction that's favored by the algorithm because it's it's not about whether or not it's a good thing or necessary to say it's about the thing that gets people to engage because it's inside of their emotions yeah and that's what that's the problem with social media is that it's just a tinder box of anger that may have come from um an understandable place but it's playing out in ways that are not, are not resulting well no yeah i know so we're We've got to find a way, and I'm not saying I have the answers. I do know that the first step in finding it. I, listen, I, I haven't logged in in a week. I have no answers. And I have to say, I feel I feel very disconnected, but I also feel very good. And again, I don't, I'm not trying to go out and do shows right now, so I'm not worried about connecting with people. But at the same time, comedy is not only a war. They could say it's a war of attrition. You really only stop being a comedian when you stop performing. Um, but it's also... It, Especially, not necessarily comedy, but with show business, it's uh, constantly about being on people's minds, which is another, I think, failing of social media. Social media 
particularly in my line of work, really encourages people just to put stuff out and not really think too much about it. Volume so, over volume over vo- substance. Exactly, quantity over quality. Yeah. And that's what social, it's particularly like YouTube. If you don't post a YouTube video every day at the same time, you're not going to get your stuff watched. I mean, I remember when I did when I did the Adam Cuts Fruit dump on YouTube, some stuff hasn't been watched. And I don't care. I'm not making Adam Cuts Fruit every day. That's not going to happen. We're not even able to really commit to doing it once a week right now. That'll probably change soon, but I, I just can't do it right now. And I'm not going to allow fear that just because I'm not putting something out doesn't mean no one's ever going to watch it. Because frankly, I'd rather put something out that I like that yeah. doesn't get that much views than crap that makes me popular. Just just dumping and dumping. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because when I say I dumped, I mean I was making those episodes once a week for a while with Rachel, but there was a lot of love in it. We put some thought into it, and we only did it once a week at a time that was convenient for us. And we're not I'm, – I'm not altering that to get famous. I'm just not doing it. Maybe because I'm not you know, 20, I'm 36 now, and I just don't care about those things, but – um, I, I'd rather I'd rather do something good that I like than something popular that would because eventually it would you, I wouldn't be motivated to do it. No, I love it. Yeah, because you would just once you lose that soul, then it's like why are you even doing it, right? You know, like right. you're doing it. Right. It's it's a it's a kind of catch twenty two. You know, you're doing it because you love it, and obviously you know you wanna you want to get it out there and get it seen. But if it's if that's sacrificing your integrity as an artist, then it's eventually it's going to show up in the content. Yeah. It's going to show up in the videos that you don't want to do it. Well, I think what you're doing just now is the conversation we all have to have with ourselves of, and only we know when, when they're like, okay, I know I'm on Facebook too much. I know I'm on Twitter too much. I'm always angry. I, I, I can't, I, I sign up for two seconds and my, my blood pressure spikes. I know it, you know, my pupils dilate and I feel like I'm going to throw up. It's like, okay, well, that's probably too much. You know, you're probably on too much. Or you've right. got to figure out a way to disengage some of those emotions. Maybe you got to meditate longer. I, I think we're, I think we're leaning far to the side where we're becoming a little bit too Borg, where we need to be more individuals, and we got to do our own homework as individuals before we can step out into the fray, you know. And I think we're losing that because of too much stimulus. There's so much, there's so much plugged inness going on, where that conversation can't even happen. You know? That's our only way to engage with people. I mean, you and I are talking. It sounds like we're in the same room because technology is great. Yeah. But we're not. You're on the other side of the country right now. Yeah. I mean, and we're I'm talking in Delaware. over. We're yeah. talking. We're talking over the internet, which is awesome. I love that that exists. But there are certain aspects of it that absolutely poison the mind and create that kind of groupthink scenario where we end up being a bit borgified and not thinking for ourselves. Right. So it's, there's got to be, you know, so I, I feel like pulling back is good. I feel like we could all use more more us time. I know that my anxiety and my us time are, are inversely proportional or directly proportional. I mean, like the more me time I have and I consider myself an extrovert, you know, I'm I'm right. ready for this pandemic to be. I'm, I'm so ready for this pandemic to be over. But I do got to say, once I let the me time gestate and, and let it process and be the happier and less anxious I became. And yeah, right. if, if that means I'm not putting out as much stuff, then so be it. Like my health, like if, if you burn out and you, and you lose your, your consciousness to this internet hive mind, right. Then what are you going to really be able to offer as an artist anyway? You know, like you were saying, yeah, I remember 
I remember watching an interview with a famous YouTuber, and he was being interviewed by one of his fans. He was a little kid. Um, and the kid asked him, you know, what was the last vacation that you went on? And it was kind of a sad answer because the guy's like, I don't, I don't go on vacation. I work seven days a week. You don't stop. And I'm like, that's, that's horrible. Like, is that, I, I, you know, I hope, I hope you like it. I hope this is what you want because it's not what I would want. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. Five day work week. Listen, I'm all in favor of a four day work week and, and a three day weekend. There's a lot of studies that said that shorter work days and shorter work weeks uh, end up uh, providing more productivity. There's a lot of uh, discussions about that. Also, I like the idea of having three days off. But um, yeah. just what, regardless, I am not the kind of I am not, maybe maybe even like five or six years ago, I was absolutely a workaholic. Like I would remember when we were doing our podcast, I would always be coming running late from a show. So I'd work all day. I'd go do a show, a stand-up show, and then I would have to run home and meet you at my apartment so we could do our show. And so basically that morning, I got up probably about seven thirty or eight o'clock to go to work. And then I worked until about six o'clock at night. I would go do a show from like uh, you know, eight o'clock, maybe get something to eat on the way, crap food on the way in my car as I'm driving, and then get to the gig, hang out for a couple hours, you know, do my set, and then run over to see you at my house. And we would basically do the show until about midnight. So my day, and that was typical. If it wasn't a podcast, it was two shows. And that's fine. That's okay. That's a good thing. But I couldn't do it forever. And my health caught up with me. And yeah. I had to slow down. Exactly. I, I, I just had to slow down. I couldn't. Remember, I had I had that um, the, the open mic. And that, uh, the open mic was an amazing experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But there's no way that I could do it long term. I have friends who can do that, who still do that. Uh, just to clarify, Adam was uh, hosting it. So you're the first guy there and the last the last guy there. Yeah, I'm, I'm the ho- first guy there. I'm the last guy to leave. I'm responsible for putting everybody up. I got to know everyone's names. And an open mic in LA, like a particular the one that I had, it was just kind of a sweet spot. There wasn't an open mic in at that time spot in that part of town. So it became very popular very fast. And to say that I'm a popular open mic host... Com- uh, open mics to comedians are drugs. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm selling drugs to comics. I'm selling stage time. So I'm not exactly like, <laughs> I, I didn't do any amazing marketing thing. I sold drugs to comics and that drug was stage time. But um, in the end, like starting a show at 1030 at night, going until two o'clock in the morning and then getting up for work the next day was not good for my health. I had to slow it down. And to think that people still commit to that kind of, lifestyle if it's good for them great i i hope they're not um i i hope they don't feel obligated for just for the purpose of putting up to maintaining their popularity on this website that uses an algorithm that favors the constant uploading because they'll, they'll burn themselves out and that's kind of a scary proposition yeah no you, you go full borg if you were right 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 exactly yeah where you you lose you've allowed you've soul. allowed this technology to determine everything about your day about your time about your energy yeah not for sure no and i think this is such a conversation such an important conversation that we all have to have with ourselves of where that balance that line is drawn the line must be drawn here <laughs> no further and i will make them pay for what they've done <laughs> Gotta love Could you movie. imagine Riker saying something like that? Like, I'm so happy. So it was apparently Patrick Stewart shot yeah, you were down saying. the Riker on the ship. He shot down the Riker on the ship thing. And I think it was him to be like, Picard's got to be a jealous SOB about this. Put him on the ship and have that breakdown occur. 
I, I couldn't imagine Riker having that scene. It doesn't work. I know. I, I can't see it going any other way. I love that Jonathan two takes Frakes. I did really, <laughs> only, really only do two takes because, man, they, they nailed it, I guess. Um, but, yeah, but being able to see, being able to see, you know, the, the front and behind the camera element and then showing that you can do it. And, and, and obviously, oh, so he's just done his 22nd episode of Star Trek. He's done almost all the this, this series. He's done Discovery, Picard, and Deep Space Nine, and TNG. And he didn't do TOS. He did not do TOS. Didn't, yeah. didn't get to direct an episode of TOS. Yeah, but I think might have been, might a, be little, might have been a little bit too young. Might have been a little too young, but uh, he yeah. still could have done it. Yeah, no, but I love that there's people that get Trek and understand its DNA and then are able to do a movie like First Contact where they show that they can do it and they can bring it to a wider audience. Because I remember being in the theater and there being a lot of hardcore Trekkers, but then there being a lot of people that they're like, oh, this is just... I'm just go- like you said, we're just going to the box office. You can't just get the fans and then that be enough for box office numbers, as we've seen. Right. You've got to mm-hmm. open it up to a wider audience, but they didn't sell out. And I felt like all the people like Brandon Braga and Ron Moore and Rick Berman, they just got it. And uh, I really want to talk about Jerry Goldsmith for a second. Um, I actually visited- I have an interesting I have a very interesting Jerry Goldsmith uh, piece of trivia. Do you want to hear? Oh, yeah, go ahead. So there is a musical instrument called a blaster beam, and it is this—it is the musical instrument that's used in um, the motion picture when V'ger's on screen, and it's the same um, music. That instrument, especially the scene that I remember most about it, is the one in the deflector dish. It's the same instrument. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. that. It's like that. It almost sounds like a very low piano key. It's like dong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Dong. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Um, God, there's so much good trivia here, but we'll get to it later. Please, please do your Jerry Goldsmith thing. Oh, yeah. Well, um, my good buddy and also alum of the show, uh, Rick Galley, he has a tradition where he goes on Halloween. He goes and visits uh, Jerry Goldsmith at his his uh, his gravesite in Culver City. And I I went with him this year and it was so cool. And uh, I really I mean, we just we owe this man so much. And I, I he's he's in. The pantheon of just some of the best composers, film and television, and um, you know he's he did he did just about every Star Trek that wasn't James Horner, right? I think yes. Was, were there any exceptions besides like the later films, obviously, like the new ones? But yeah, so he passed away in 04, of the old movies. So, but yeah, no, I think of the old much... of the old films. I, uh, yeah, he obviously couldn't. Yeah, but I think did he do Emesis too? Like I think he might have done everything except for two, three, and four. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I do know that he wrote the Next Gen theme song, which I didn't know until way later because I was such a Next Generation fan. And that's really where I jumped in um, in the early 90s, started really getting into it. I mean, I was born in 84, so I was pretty young. But uh, I didn't realize that, and this is a trivia thing, and I know you know this, but that the Next Generation theme song is actually the motion picture theme song written by him, yeah. by Goldsmith. Right. You know, dun, 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 dun. Which is the most so good? It just sounds like you're gallivanting above in the stars, right? Like you know, yeah. I know, like the space force has been this stupid joke in this country for the last few years, but you know that if that ever gets off the ground and they end up actually sending a ship out in space, they're gonna play the Star Trek theme song. That theme song when they shoot out in the space, at least they better. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, yeah, Goldsmith. I mean, he permeates Trek and so many films. I mean, you could. His resume goes on for days. It's, you know, I wouldn't even have time to read it right now. It's just too big. But um, 
I I was at the I was at the site. Uh, it was a couple days after Halloween, with Rick Galley, and uh, all of a sudden I hear the first Contact theme song, and I thought, wait a minute, is this coming from my mind? Um, <laughs> and then I turn I turn over and Rick has his has his uh, iPhone out, and he's playing the first Contact theme, and just being there with Jerry and thanking him, um, and then uh, hearing that score, just. It was such a powerful moment. And I really wanted to bring it up, but the score to this movie—I mean, music makes makes it right. I mean, you can't you can't separate the music from the visual. You wouldn't, you know, it just wouldn't. You could. No, it almost does. It almost does all the work. Yeah, and like I remember it really, um, it really puts it really elevates the emotion to where like where if it wasn't there, it wouldn't it wouldn't land as well. Yeah, it wouldn't land. And uh, I remember an interview with with Goldsmith, and I think it might have been on the first Contact Blu-ray. I'm pretty sure it was. Um, about you know, Jerry Goldsmith said that, you know, used to get a lot of criticism for kind of leading the audience. And he's like, no, well, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, we're, you know, music is the soul of, of the visual a lot of yeah. the time. Is a movie, is a scary movie scary if it doesn't have that 80s synth? That no. John Carpenter no, synth? No, you wouldn't, which, which is funny because maybe you could set the character up for a demise that would shock the audience, but you wouldn't set the mood. You simply wouldn't set the mood. You know, when I think of a, yeah. a movie that really requires mood and a score is um, The Fog. Oh, yeah. Uh, John, John, John Carpenter. Carpenter's The Fog. The, the Fog doesn't have a whole lot of action. No, it's pretty so slow. So you have, you have to let the music build, and that's really what it does. That was actually the first episode of the show. It was uh, Phil Gawthorne, and we talked about The Fog. There you go. Before, I want to ask you a few things about you and your career and what you are up to. Um, oh, but yeah. I wanted to know if you had any other first contact or Star Trek. I know we could go on all day. Oh, sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll just add a, a few interesting tidbits about this. Um, let's see. So uh, LeVar Burton lobbied to get the uh, visor replaced in this movie, and he finally got his wish. So he was actually, because he right. felt like he was never able to act very well. So he was the one who advocated for that. I always wonder what that was. Um, Whitby Goldberg was not asked to be in this movie in spite of Guinan's character having the connection with the Borg. Remember, she's the one that knows who they are in, in Q Who. Right. But um, no, she, she simply just wasn't asked to be a part of it. It wasn't like they had ideas and they didn't work. They just, they didn't do it. For yeah, some and it, she was in the prior film in Generations. Right. Um, so the early drafts of the script were going to have the Defiant be destroyed, and oh. Ron Moore shot that down. But they originally wanted—that's what they wanted—and luckily he won out. Um, there is a deleted scene with Avery Brooks. It was filmed but deleted, and I don't know if there's even a, like a del- if it's in a deleted scene, like if they huh. even have a copy of what was shot. But um, wow. Um, so the the Queen was not originally the idea. The idea was that Data was going to talk to a central command computer, but making the Queen, for all the reasons that we've already discussed, um, yeah, it was... But it's funny that we say that because Alice Kriege's costume was so uncomfortable that she could only keep it on for so many minutes at a time. It was mm. painful, she said. Yeah, Caused I can't a lot imagine of pain. All, the, um, all those nodes and wires and... And that, that Another, outfit, the latex, I mean, it must have been, yeah, it must have been right. brutal. You mentioned Ridley Scott as being considered to direct the movie. Um, also, John McTiernan was considered. Oh, John McTiernan, director of Die Hard and Predator and Hunt for Red October. Yeah, Predator, Die Hard, uh, Last Action Hero. Oh, yeah, Last Action Hero. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, great action 
Great director, great, great American director. Right, right, um, right, right. Uh, I, I really am just so happy that uh, Frick stepped up. You know, totally. I mean, he. I'm so grateful. He get he just gets it. You know, I, I, I feel like First Contact was the perfect kind of Venn diagram of like opening up to awesome scope and action and the epicness was there, but it was it was essentially a Star Trek episode with a lot of money. You know, right, and um. We always go back to Cromwell because he was so center in this movie. But he said that this character, the, the Zephyr Cochran character, is the most like his personality of anyone that he's played. Oh, cool. So he, there, was a, there was a real sense of why he was absolutely the right person to pick. Yeah. You know, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a deep level. So I loved it. Yeah. I loved I mean, he, he, he really, it really was that kind of culture, culture collision that the foiling, right. the foiling, like having. Having the people in the Federation look at their hero as through mm-hmm. the lens of this godlike guy, and then seeing and, his humanity, um, and then they scared they scared him too much. He was like, ah, he couldn't take it. I love I love right. where they have to uh, shoot him. I don't think we mentioned that earlier. They literally have to phaser him, right, to get him to cooperate. <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, it's just so many good stuff. Oh, uh, one one last thing. I'll do, and I'll close out with this. Um, uh, this was the first Star Trek film to get an MP uh, PG thirteen rating. Is they were all right? PG before this. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. There's like like we were talking about some of the horror elements. I feel like some of the most horror Trek gets is in this one. Uh, the POV Borg cam, you know, through like I the fish think, eye lens is horrifying. I don't think you're going to get a PG rating when Picard has to shoot one of one of his own guys. Like it's just that's out. Yeah, that was brutal. You know him literally crying out for help, reach, reaching out. Oh my god, it's it's harrowing. Um, we didn't we didn't actually talk about seeing some of his uh, his anger with Lily and and then the big goodbye stuff in the Dixon Hill. Yes, um, yes, novels. great reference to a first a first season episode. I yeah, love the that. big goodbye. They they play they play the gangsters and they play you know gumshoe <laughs> computer freeze program computer freeze program. <laughs> but seeing seeing Picard. Mowing down Borgs with a Tommy gun has so got to be the coolest. And then when he's like, oh, and he's like, he's, he's about to smash the Tommy, the butt of the Tommy gun. In I, his think face. I think you got him. I think you got him. Yeah, that was that was the moment where I think Lily starts to put together that Picard. You don't think I know the thrill in someone's eyes when they're murdering someone? Yeah. I see it, I all, see the it time. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> where was your evolved sensibility then? <laughs> So good. Oh God, uh, that scene that scene ever. should be done in like every acting class. You need to make two people do that scene. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Man. And definitely watch First Contact in all film school. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so Adam Ferberg, this is his second episode of the Andyplex now. Thanks for yeah. being with me again. Thank you, Andy. And uh, you currently are a um, producer for Let's Make a Deal. Yeah, yeah, show. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I know we talked about uh, everyone. You got to go if you haven't already. Go back and listen to episode four. Adam and I talk. Uh, one of our favorite movies it might be your favorite movie. I don't know. So yeah, Spaceballs. Uh, I would say is probably my number one movie all time. Yeah, second only to First Contact. <laughs> right. Yeah. When I talk to the Star Trek fans, it's First Contact. When I talk to everybody else, it's Spaceballs, which isn't that much different. It's a silly kinda, parody yeah. comedy of all all science fiction. So I'm not exactly hiding behind anything when I say it's Spaceballs. <laughs> yeah. So yes, hear more Adam Ferberg on Spaceballs, the podcast episode four of the Andyplex. But I wanted to touch back in on 
what you do. Um, why don't you just go ahead and, and lay it on us and uh, break it down for us? Yeah, so um, right now, I mean, I know we've talked a lot about my comedy stuff before, but I also do television production work. Um, I do, I, I'm currently a producer on a game show called Let's Make a Deal. It's on CBS in the mornings, and it stars Wayne Brady. Um, also has uh, Jonathan Mangum, is another comedian. He's the announcer, and they do a lot of the improv games together because he and Wayne came up together. So they know each other very well. The games play super fun. Um, the uh, uh, presenter, her name is Tiffany Coyne. And then the musicians, a guy named Cat Gray, who played with Prince at one point amongst a ton of other musicians. And it's just a really, really fun dynamic. This year um, has been really difficult to produce the show, but we've somehow been able to execute it because, you know, we're smart people and we're resourceful but um typically the show is done in front of a huge live audience that interacts with the show there's a big crowd of people about 250 people and the uh contestants come from that crowd it's it's similar to uh, uh the price is right where if you're in the audience you might play um and because of the pandemic with all these new rules in place and social distancing we've cut the number of people on set from 250 to 12. So uh, wow. we're at, yeah, so it's very, very significant drop. You know, we're, again, safety protocols, everyone's like 10 feet apart. And we do shoot with masks off, but we have people wear them when they arrive and everyone's been COVID tested. And so we're doing everything we can to follow the rules and be as safe as possible while still trying to execute the show. It's not a complete free-for-all. Everyone's incredibly vetted. Everyone's tested days prior and the day of. And, um, you know, as vaccines roll out, hopefully things will be able to ease up a little bit. But um, it's probably smart yeah. that it's probably smart that we just keep our guards up because we still don't know about what transmission means to the vaccines. Um, right. So what I do specifically on the show, I, my title is prize producer. And so I work in the prize department. And our show is very prize heavy. Uh, it's you're basically competing for different prize packages ranging from uh, kitchen appliances to a trip you could win a car you could win a suite of computer electronics you could win a, a you know, bunch of tvs uh, furniture all kinds of different prize packages and it's my job to kind of piece those together and i work i work with other people who's also it's also their responsibility we split up episodes we split up weeks but um, in the end, the creative choices of what goes to in each package is up to us. And I'm one of the people that makes those choices. So it's not as simple as just saying, well, throw in a bunch of put, – put a fridge in a, a, a gas range and that's it. No, you, it needs to be a little bit more creative than that. So we, we get maybe a food item or a drink item or something to just kind of dress it up a little bit. Um, uh, particularly sporting, uh, uh, sporting goods packages can be fun because you can really – go wild on are you going to go on some kind of an adventure a bike riding adventure is it going to be a surfing adventure because you can make me pair it with a trip so it's funny you don't really write the show the only real writing goes into the copy uh, which sometimes might be dictated by the prize of the, the people who provided the prizes but um mm -hmm. there certainly is a lot of writing that goes into the copywriting itself but when i say writing the show i mean like thinking about what it's actually going to look like on screen and that's kind of yeah. one of the big things that we do. So there's the games producers that decide which games we're going to play. And then they also decide we need these kinds of prizes to differentiate each one in the episodes. And then we get those bills and it's up to us to fill those all with the prizes. And then once those are approved, the copywriter then writes the copy to them. And sometimes like 
I, I also handle our relationships with our car vendors. So I'm, I'm the one who's like, we're going to pick up them out these days and we're going to hold them for a while. And um, so sometimes I'll write the copy to the cars just to give a, you know, obviously the writer has uh, her own uh, voice and we want to definitely want that to come out. But just to make things easier, I'll provide some copy just because I know the cars like the back of my hand. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's a creative process to it. There's certainly a coordination process to it because like if I order something, I have to, like earlier today we were on, we were recording and I had to take a break because I knew a big prize that I ordered for a big package in a couple of weeks is arriving tomorrow. So I had to accept that phone call, let them know that I was on board. I then had to call my warehouse coordinator to make sure he knew to be there when it arrived. And then I have to call again tomorrow to make sure everything's gone smoothly. So there's... There's like actual like um, keeping your eyes on the budget. There's keeping your eyes on items coming in and out and where things are. There's maintaining the relationships with my vendors. And then there's the creative aspect that goes into like making sure things look good and look different. Because my executive producer is obsessed with episodes not looking the same. Which is yeah. a good thing. It means that, yeah. you know, no one's... Because there are people who do watch these shows like regularly and we don't want them saying just the same things a million times so just cookie cutter over and over assembly line right and it's really it's really easy to fall into those traps because one one once one thing works you want to do it again but you can't do it too often because then you you kill the magic right right yeah so finding ways to keep it visually dynamic and interesting and different right and and visuals is very it's it's interesting you wouldn't think it would play a big part of it but you know we have a huge sec a decorated decoration team set deck we call them and like mm-hmm. they're awesome and they make like what should just be a fridge and a range and a food item they make it look really fun and colorful and make it pop and there's a lot of artistic creativity that goes into that aspect of it too so we do have to be mindful of that because we're given like sometimes we're given a certain size package that we have to fit stuff in um so we have to be mindful of what kind of prices could go in there too so there's again coordination and the creativity kind of go hand in hand yeah for sure. Man, that's so cool. You've been doing it now for over a year now, right? I've been wow. at the show for four years. This is my fourth um, my fourth season. I want to say it's the third one where I was at the producer level. My first one was at the associate producer level. But yeah, I've been working for these guys since 2017. And I, I, I really love it. Yeah, wow. dude, it's crazy how much time goes by, right? Yeah, um, but I love out. it. That's awesome. My, co-work, my coworkers are super cool. I miss I missed going into the office. Like, I have to say, like, it's funny. I moved to a part of town in L.A. where it's right near where we would shoot. And that was just coincidental. Um, it just kind of worked out. We could afford this place. Um, but I live, like, 10 minutes from set. And I was like, this is great. I'm 10 minutes from set. I'm, like, five minutes from all the open mics that I like to do. Like, I am. This is great. 2020 is going to be my year. And then a <laughs> month into it, just nope. So I do work from home mostly. I do have to go to the office sometimes to deal with like cars because, again, I'm the car person. So I have to receive them. I have to make sure that there are no dents. I have to take a bunch of pictures so that I can build it into our database correctly. Um, I, I Man, I never thought that like anything could be so attention to detail heavy. This show is unbelievably de- attention to detail heavy. One wrong click in our database, and you have lost us ten thousand dollars. Like it's wild how mm. like it's you. You have to be on top of your shit. You just have to. And yeah. the moment you're not, you're gonna get caught with your pants down. Yeah. Right, and you're part of a a, a much 
You're one piece of a puzzle. I'm exactly. Um, and if my puzzle piece isn't in the right place, I have screwed up ten other pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. Well, it's cool that it seems like the team is really cool and. The communication is really important, and it's it's actually really good. I want to say we're very good at keeping each other informed of things, um, yeah. and especially right now, like this has been a real test to see if we could do this because we're all we're not there. Like you know, yeah. a lot of our problems before could have been solved by shouting down the hallway or going downstairs to somebody's office. That's not an option anymore. Now you have to send a call, and then you have to send a text if that person didn't pick up the phone. And, and then you have to and... you have to email if they didn't text you, and you have to keep on top of all three, and you just have to be annoying, and everyone has to be annoying because they know that's the only way things are going to get done. Yeah, so you can't let things um, slip. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it, it, I was just I hadn't checked my email today, and I'm really glad I did because I, my work email because I'm I'm technically not working today, but there's something happened where I have to be on top of it, and I don't have a choice because it's it came from one of my vendors. And I have to keep them happy if I want to keep working with them. So I'll be making some phone calls when you know you and I are done here now. Yeah, yeah. I know. So just to clarify, you guys are taking a, a few weeks off because of the, the new surge in L.A. Right. Yeah, we were, is now we were the, supposed to hotspot. We were supposed to go back into production um, last Monday. And that we, we got put on hold till February 1st because of uh, the spikes. Because it's not yeah. even it. Obviously, COVID is a thing, but because hospitals are overrun, even simple injuries couldn't be treated. Yeah, you know, like if right. there was an accident, if there was an accident on set and a lighting person hurt themselves or something, right. they won't get seen. They won't get seen. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I know that's that's really part of the the scary thing is that the hospitals are tied up, and yeah, like don't you got to be even more cautious. You know, don't don't right. drop a two by four on your leg or, or whatever. Right. Right, and yeah. even again, like we're working with such a skeleton crew on set. It, before there were a hundred people uh, in, in our offices, and that's not the case anymore. There, yeah. there are as many people as humanly possible to do as much of the legwork, like as many as people as we possible, as as few people as we possibly can. Excuse me, to do as much of the work on set because of all the rules. And frankly, you know, we want to be safe. We don't want to, you know, just ignore the rules and and get the show done because someone's going to get sick and it'll blow up the whole thing. So we do have to be safe and we have to be smart about it. And there are ways to do it. It's just, it's added a lot. Everyone's job is harder, but I also am really impressed at how much we've gotten done. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Kudos to you and team. Nice. Sounds like you've really risen to the, to the challenge. Like you said, I'd like to think so. I, I think we're doing a great job. That's awesome. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. So cool. And again, let's make a deal. Adam Ferberg, the you said prize producer, right? Yeah, prize producer. Let's make a deal. It's on every morning on CBS. They also own uh, a franchise called Star Trek. Yes, they do. It's a Paramount production. <laughs> yep. So or uh, was it uh, Viacom or whatever? I'm, I'm getting them all confused. Viacom. Because right. it, it's the thing is, it's all based on like the title card that we saw at the end of the episodes. Sometimes it was Paramount, sometimes it was Viacom. It depended on who had the rights because now it's CBS. Um, which I think is going back to being Viacom, which will then go back to being Paramount. I don't know. I, I don't get the whole thing, but it's which fun. Which is all owned by Disney now and Facebook and Amazon. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's hilarious. It's so true. Um, I know. Yeah, it's hard and, to keep and, track. It is. Uh, in terms of comedy, obviously no shows right now because of COVID stuff. Um, I've been doing the online thing, and I think we talked about that in the last episode where I wasn't really that into it, but I'll do it if people invite me. But it's just, for me, doing... This comedy is about going to a show and getting on stage and talking to people. Like, I don't like talking at them. 
I like talking yeah. to them. Like that's my approach is I need to make eye contact with as many members of the crowd because, right. you know, I actually was seeing um, an interesting, sometimes I'll check in on like different standup uh, on Reddit. I love the, the Reddit standup thing. Not that I necessarily learned something, but I love a lot of people put their sets online to get straight up feedback from other comedians. And I am way too uh, like self-conscious to do that. I never, I would never put a video out there to let people just break it down. But I remember last night or the day before, I was just reading where it, someone struggled with saying um too much. Um, like the, every other word was um. And one of the comments was, look at the audience and make eye contact with them. It's terrifying, but do it and you won't say um. And I don't really, I don't remember the last time I struggled with like stopping words. And I remember at one point in my career, I was like, just look at people and talk to them. And you'll never feel like, at least for me, I don't feel like I'm reading the script at that point. If like I can actually, a, t- like it's a presentation that you're on a track. Right, right, yeah. And if you just yeah. you know glaze over your own eyes and look to the back of the room and try to remember every word, it's not a conversation anymore. Not that it was ever a conversation. You certainly don't want people talking back to you, but it's almost like the the dialogue is my words and their laughter, and that's the dialogue that we're having. And as long as I can establish that, even though I don't want you to say a single word to me, I'd prefer that you just see the laughter wasn't here. That laughter to me is the dialogue. So um, mm-hmm. I miss that. That's probably the one thing I miss the most. I'm working. I remember we talked months and months ago about me working on an album. Um, it's getting there. I, I just got the tracks back last week where like they're like cleaned up in audio. And I, I took a couple jokes out because they weren't quite finished. So Rachel and I are going to listen to that tomorrow, and hopefully by the end of the month, I can actually put... I'm also waiting for some artwork. Remember when Mark Gonzalez did that artwork of the King of the Jews, and it was me on a cross with a smile on oh, my face? Oh, yeah. my God. That was so, so funny. I asked him to take out the Netflix logos so that I don't get sued, but I think I might use that as the artwork. Mark Gonzalez is a great guy. I've met through great. you. At your, at your wedding, I think I met him, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark is awesome, dude. He'd be a great yeah. guest on this show. You guys should pick a movie and, and Yeah, and, no, and I'd, chat I'd, he'd I'd, be I'd, awesome. I'd love to have him. I'd love to have him. He's, he's, he's hilarious good. and really just a great guy. I follow him online and love his stuff. Mark's great. Mark's awesome. I love him. So <laughs> working on that comedy-wise, um, no real gigs, obviously, coming up, and I'm not really seeking out the online thing. Don't get me wrong. Once things are, are back... I, I gotta go on stage. It's just a thing. I, I love you I love it. that I love that feeling. I just love it. And again, like even over the last few years as I've really been like, I'm not trying to be famous. I'm just trying to go out, do shows where I know I like where I'm gonna be. I like the, the host of the show and I wanna be around this person. That's really was my focus. And like the last year was like just a really relaxing feeling of not putting so much weight on the rat race aspect of it to me. And especially, like, when I think about, like, I have hours and hours of audio that I recorded of myself over years. And I don't even have all of it. I just have what I have over the last few years because I've been a lot more diligent about saving it. But before, I don't even know what I did with some of it. I lost years of stuff. But I still have so much that I can just comb through. And I'm going to – it's not necessarily an album because it's definitely a bunch of sets edited together. It's more of like a mixtape, and I'll probably release it. I think he gave me four long tracks, and so I'll call each one like volume one. So I'll do like King of the Jews, volumes one through four, and it's four tracks. Um, and the fourth one isn't even um, – it's not even really so much stand-up as much as it was a storytelling show that I did where I inject the jokes into it. But I told a story about some time that I spent with my dad before he passed away 
kind of an embarrassing story that turned out to be really really funny but it's it's definitely that set, that track of it is different but i still want to put it out because i liked what it was um, yeah no so, i like you're yeah. finding ways to be creative um you're doing a lot of podcasts i know you've been on guests on other podcasts you have your yeah you mentioned adam cuts fruit earlier um you know which has become adam bay's fritzy your dog. yeah well We'll bring we'll bring both of those back eventually. We've just been a little uh, busier than I expected on the weekends uh, the last couple of weeks, but we'll bring we'll bring Adam. Yeah, there's Adam cuts fruit um, on my YouTube channel. I'm eventually going to upload, even though you've probably seen this before, but it's on Facebook hidden somewhere. It's uh, throw, coffee, throwing coffee at cars with comedians. Oh yeah, comedians. that was great. So I want to I want to put that on my YouTube channel um, just to put it out there much more organized because I think YouTube's organization is better than Facebook's when it comes to videos. Um, yeah, I. Uh, uh what else do i have um you know i've written some sketches this time um i've written i wrote a theme we're working you and i and some other friends are working on uh an episode of a a show called beyond repair and i wrote the theme song to that i've written i wrote a theme song for fritzy so (laughs) my dog fritzy dog has his own theme song yeah so i like like what you said about the peeling back from the rat race and i think that goes back into what we we're talking about with the Borg, and you know, if you're if you're yeah. plugged in all the time, there's no there's no room for for the actual art to cultivate and grow. And right, and like you said, your anxiety levels came down, and you feel like your your life kind of looks. I was more able like to enjoy myself to. more. Yeah. I was able to enjoy myself more because I didn't. There wasn't this need to compare. Right, I love that, and yeah, it's so easy to compare, but in the end, it's like. We're all artists doing us, so it's like it's right. impossible to actually. It's Apple. As long as you're yeah. honest and true to yourself, and you do something, then you can be proud of it. Yeah, don't try to be a great man; just be a man, and let history do the judging. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? You did, one. Jesus. You did. No, I think that was Star Trek. Separate <laughs> Cochran slash Jesus from South Park. That's so hilarious that they, they uh, reference that. Um. All right, cool. Well, thanks for sharing all that. I actually, I got to say, I get mostly from my family and kind of, I, I say the lay people, the people that like aren't in the business. Right. And um, I even struggle with this. And I'm not sure if this is something that you can wrap your head around, but I get, you know, what are all the different kinds of producers? What does it mean? The executive producer, regu- if there's just producer, line producer, you know, mm-hmm. there's all these kind of subcategories of producers. Sure. I wanted to know if maybe you could shed some light into because I get this question so much, and I actually I gotta say I was at the dinner table just a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. with my my parents, and I love them to death, but I was just kind of like I don't know, God, leave me alone. Like, <laughs> well, what's the difference between a you know? And I feel like I get that question so much, and I've even asked producers on movies and sets over the years that I've worked on, and even they're like, you know, I think there's kind of a rule of thumb, but it, every every show, every movie's different. But I wanted to know and if that's... you had any. Well, that's specifically with my kind of show. You're not going to get a prize producer on a motion picture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or a scripted uh, sitcom. Uh, my show is very specific about what we assign producers. Sure, there are executive producers. There are co-executive producers. There are producers, co-producers, supervising producers. Um, on our show and on everything, an executive producer is the man. Like, that person makes all the calls. That's it. Um, the co-executive producers, I think, are the hierarchy down, and they're the ones that kind of set all the wheels in motion. They'll do some creative, but they'll also do some oversight. And then um, uh, we have games producers, which are the guys that take the what the co-executive producers want to do and then kind of fill in the blanks on 
I think they're the ones that choose the games and then choose with with the co-executive producers. They choose what kind of prize packages they are. Then my team gets it, the prize producers, and we actually build the prize packages into each episode. Um, and that that's how the hierarchy works on ours. There are supervising producers that run each department. So I know there's a supervising producer that works in the sound booth, and they're the ones that are keeping track of time, and they're the ones that the script supervisors report. They they report to that person to make sure that the scripts are all correct and everything was done correctly. Um, then you go to uh, like my boss is the supervising producer, so I think that's a it's not necessarily a job description as much as it is a hierarchy thing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you mentioned line producer. I'm not aware of us having someone specifically designated at a, as a line producer, but I do know that the two supervising. I, I think the supervising producers like um, whenever I'm coming for my boss, if she can't do this one task, she heard at one of the jobs at the end of the day is she has to download the budgetary report and send it to the team. Which I'd imagine, if there was a proper line producer, that might be their job to because that's what a line producer does. Their job is to keep track of the budget. And hire yeah. and hire hire out accordingly, but also make sure that everything's on budget based on the hire. Is, is that what line time. means? Like like bottom line? Like is that? That sounds that makes sense to me. I actually don't know, but I, I just yeah. do know that a line producer is the person that is aware. As far as I know, is the person that's aware of the budget and does a lot of the hiring. Yeah, that's that's what I've come to believe as well. Yeah. Cool. So awesome. Man. There's a there are a lot of titles, and like I said, they change. Yeah, they change. They change based on every 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 show, every movie, every every everything is its own kind of entity. It's its own business entity, right? You know, Um, so it it's there is some there is some wiggle room in the specific titles. So it 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 is confusing. It is confusing. But Um, it's it's. I would say it's specific to each show. Specific to each show. Cool. All right, Adam Ferberg. I really appreciate all your time. Hey, thanks for wonderful. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, this is awesome. You'll be back again. I love working with you in all facets, and uh, it was good to also hang out with you. Yeah, yeah, it's like we we you know we got some something done, but we were chatting and nerding out the whole time, so it was uh, productive on both ends. <laughs> this is pretty much what we talk about whenever we hang out, anyway. Right? Yeah, yeah. This is this is just a normal phone <laughs> conversation for you and me. They last two hours, yeah. and we talk about Star Trek the whole time. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> as we should. All right, brother. Love you lots. Say hi to Rachel. Love you for too. Me. Will do. Your we'll your do. awesome wife and your awesome dog Fritzy. Oh, I appreciate it. And I, I hope you and your family you and your family are doing well and I can't wait to I'm podcasting with Gianni later too, so I'm spending the day with the Majoranos, man. This is great. Yeah, this is awesome. I know. I'll uh, I'll be seeing you on Twitch a little bit later on Yeah. Uh, on Decrata's channel, my brother Decrata. Woo Gianni. Also known as yeah, Gianni. Who's who's like blown up as a streamer, dude. He's getting he's averaging like twenty viewers an episode. It's great. It takes people years to build that kind of profile, and he did it in like a year, not even. No, it's been so cool. I love, I love twitching with him. You're always there. Thanks for supporting. Oh, of You've course. Been on the show a few times. I look, I look forward to every Thursday. I always check in. It's the best, man. I love it. All right, brother. Love you lots. Live love long. Love you too. Thanks for having me. And prosper. peace and long life, my friend. <laughs>